In this episode, Zach talks about the difficulties in setting up a meeting with Victor Boot, the merchant of death. It was this like really delicate dance going back and forth. Like, why can't you come here? I told you, I am not getting a Russian stamp on my passport. Why can't you come here? Well, I'm not sure it's really good for me there. Obviously, you've read about me. I have to be careful where I'm at. So there's this back and forth. But then at the, at the end, we just realized he wasn't coming. And, um, and so we gave him the order to w- walk away. And we all fought internally about that. If it was time, if it wasn't time, we just said, like, listen, um, this is going to happen, but we can't be afraid to walk away. Bad guys walk away from deals all the time. We'll actually, we'll look less like cops if we walk away. When you keep pushing too hard through danger, when everybody knows you shouldn't do it, whatever, you really start to look like a cop. So we're like, we should be the ones to say, screw this, we're out. Um, because we'll look more righteous that way. And that's, that's ultimately after, you know, 17 days, what we did. Welcome to Game of Crimes. But that's a typical special forces attitude. It's like, yeah, I can do this. And so it got quiet again. I looked at him for a second. I was like, wait a minute. Are you, are you saying what I think I'm saying? Are you in? He goes, well, hell yeah, I'm in. This sounds like great fun. And I was like, he's, and I came to realize he was just testing me. He was doing his own vetting procedure before, which is why, look, all those years as a bush pilot and everything else, why a guy like Bear was able to survive. He's nobody's dummy. You know, he had his own, he had his own vetting process. Absolutely. And, you know, you got to be an adrenal junkie yourself just to be a freaking bush pilot in Africa. Holy oh, cow. Yeah. I mean, that guy that said his story's amazing. He had some unbelievable scrapes. I mean, um, he's the only, I, I, I think he told me one day he's the only, only guy known to have made a certain type of crash landing, um, at least in Africa, and walked away from it. You know? Yeah, that was so that was the old joke. The ringer. Yeah. That was the old joke. What's the difference between a good landing and a great landing? A good landing is any time to land safely. A great landing is when you can reuse the aircraft again. <laughs> there yeah. you go. Hey, but yeah. circle back to that for a second. He, but Mike, Mike also did one thing to prove his kind of because the other thing you're looking to is somebody's got to have their bona fides. You got to say, do you really have the kind of contact you did? What was it that Mike did while you were at that meeting that showed you? Yeah, he can get a hold of you know he can arrange something with Victor through Smolian. It was, was there a text message involved in this meeting or was that later? No, it, it came after, but just from the vouch we got for, for Mike and then just hearing his story, and we went through his whole story, how he had flown for the guy before, how he had these, uh, this guy, Andrew Smolian, Andrew, he still believed to be um, in contact. And we had gone from really hitting around the periphery and trying to find these spots to the, for the first time having a solid point of entry that we thought could work. So we were looking at, uh, you know, every other angle we could find as well. Like, could we, could we somehow get into an aircraft sale of a, an aircraft that begun, you know, belongs to Victor to use that as a negotiation? Could we do this? Could we do that? And this was like the first time we'd seen this entry point where we're like, this, this sounds pretty righteous. We think it could actually work. So, um, yeah, you know, now now the beginnings of the team were assembled. We had a couple other guys in mind who we could insert as the quote unquote bad guys that the arms would be going to. And, um, Come about December, we decided, again, picking locations that so strategically and logically it's got to make sense, right? So if these guys, for example, are going to be FARC representative, Colombian, you know, terrorist traffickers, right? Where would be logical? If you know that region at all, Curacao is a huge um, money laundering and drug trafficking hub. Um, 
very stable too. It's where a lot of legitimate business and a lot of legitimate financial business is transacted. It's right off the coast of Venezuela. I mean, you can pretty much see Venezuela from it. Um, you know, FARC operates on both sides of the border in Colombia and Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela is just total wild west, right? So it was a very logical point where someone could literally just take a boat up if they wanted. Uh, so it's not a stretch to think that a bad guy that doesn't want to be seen to go up there to conduct business. It happens all the time. Um, and so come December, getting right about Christmas time, we um, instructed Bear to go ahead and try to reach out to Smolian and see if he was interested in doing a, uh, doing some business. And in a coded way, I've come to learn in, in, uh, in the arms business, at least in Africa, these guys always referred to either farm, farm equipment or agricultural equipment. Um, that, those were the, like the, the code words for arms. And so Bear sent something this morning. In fact, like I've met some, met these guys. Do you think Boris, that was code for Victor, do you think Boris um, might be able to supply some farm equipment? And I think in less than 24 hours, uh, email came back from Smalley and says, spoke to Boris, anything's possible with agricultural equipment. And Boris and was code for Victor. Was code for Victor. And so at that point, I mean, I can remember that part like it was yesterday. I know exactly where I was standing. I know what computer I was looking at when I got the email back from Bear. I was like, that was the Schwing. first time where I was like, holy cow, like this, this, this is getting some legs. That's the green go light you just got. Yeah, exactly. But back up for a second, though, because Mike, like you say, he was a fun guy, but he was a tough guy to work with, right? Because you brought him in on a money laundering sting, or he was there with Ramirez, right, for part of a money laundering sting, and you were supposed to use some of the proceeds from that to help finance that, and didn't bear it one time, kind of say, I'm tired of you guys. You're not paying me. I'm, I'm out of here. Did that, you know, because I'm, I'm just doing the research. I'm trying to figure out how much is fact, how much is fiction. Yeah, you know, it, that's where I got to be honest. It's been so long. When, when you throw stuff out that you've read open source, you make my life easy because, you know, I know you think that I know this inside out and I do, but, and I think Murph can probably attest to this. Sometimes your head starts to spin. You're trying to jumble like the, the clandestine part of your world, what's already out there, what came out in the court document, what's came out in the newspaper articles. Can I, so, and, and I'm, I try to be very sensitive to protecting people, but, um, you know, there was another operation to your point. Um, and, and he oversaw, it, well, Bear, Bear got to see some of it. Um, look, at the end of the day, Bear's all about trust. And you have to, one thing that he says, it, if you say you're going to do something, you have to do something. Um, he'd never make it in the drug business. You know, Bear, Bear would never wait, you know, <laughs> Bear would never wait at 10 days for a drug deal to go down. And, and even in this, we had to like, coach him through it because he would get mad. He's like, that's not how you do business. Like, I know, buddy. I, I get it. But so, you know, we had a couple times where our red tape, um, look, we had to get them, we had to make them officially part of the team. There's processes we have to go through to be able to even pay people travel expenses. And so uh, if things didn't go exactly when they were supposed to go, he'd get a little frustrated. And we had it out a few times. He called me things I'm not used to another man calling me, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, Is that a fine open gentleman? Can we find that? Well, <laughs> and, and, and look, and again, Murph would tell you like that's probably contrary to like not most of what we're talking about is not in our DEA source handling guide, right? right. Like, it'd be like, that's if exactly. If a right. guy talks to you like that, you fire him. He's blackballed. He's never. But this is a different case, and it was a different kind of person. And I, I knew. I, I look. I I figured out what the guy was about. He was about trust, and he needed to. He had constant test to show that you he could trust you and you were going to do and again it's his skin right so a lot of it's just checking not just funny like is he really going to get taken care of this will there be compensation if the 
the you know stuff goes bad? Are we going to be there to pick them up? Are we going to do whatever we can to protect them? So um, let's just say it was a process. So this is a good point too to, to interject too because here's the question. How do your UCs, your, you know, and I, I'm like you, I don't want to call them informant or snitches because there are some people who are doing righteous things. And like you say, you can't get a priest to do the devil's work sometimes. So you got to, you get, you have to deal with guys like this, but how do they get paid? Well, there's a, I mean, DEA has guidelines by where, you know, we can pay. So for starters, uh, we truly don't make any promises and there's, there's practical reasons for that as well as we want to keep our word. One, we ultimately don't have control over it. I can't just tell a guy, I mean, I could tell a guy that, you know, no problem on travel expenses, for example. Um, we had our program down in the BIU enough. I, I knew the I knew the ranges, but we couldn't promise a guy, especially what we call a reward. And that's when a com- case has been completely done, adjudicated the whole thing, they can, they can get a reward for their work. Um, Problem is, there's a body that decides on that, and and where our awards p- are paid out of is like like an asset forfeiture fund. It's a DOJ fund. DEA doesn't even own it, so you have to you know, DEA gets a chunk. And so th- my point is, I couldn't sit there and righteously tell someone exactly what they get in the first place. Secondly, um, we don't want to ever be accused of paying witnesses, right? And so what we would basically tell them is like, listen, I can't tell you. I, I can tell you I'll make every effort to take good care of you. We're obviously not staying in this business because we stiff people all the time. But that said, I'm not going to talk, you know, strict dollars and cents to you when the, you know, if we do pull this off after there's a trial and when, when all legal proceedings are done, um, that's when it'll all be taken care of because, I, you know, you're going to have to go on a little bit of faith on this. So that was, that wasn't easy with him. That's about the only promise you can make is I will yeah. submit your name for a reward. That's as much as I can go for. Well, the other promise is I'll make your cooperation known to the United States attorney. Well, if they're, de- if they're a defendant. Then, you know, th- there's also other categories. You have State Department authorized awards, and that's where you see, like, you'll see, you know. Uh, for terrorists and some other yeah, folks. Or five million, else, yeah, 25 million, wake, whatever. Um, and so we were also able, on, on these really big cases, we were able to tap into some of the State Department um, reward programs. Uh, and quite frankly, it, it can be a lot of money. But at the same time, when you see that uh, our guys are going in without a safety net. It's a and, lot of and, risk, too. Yeah. Well, and re- like recording, they're going to testify. They're outing themselves. They're not going to be hidden. Like, for the most part, you can try, but they're really not going to be hidden by a fake name, right? And then you had, in a lot of other instances, like really good people throughout the world that are getting a paid a fortune for calling him from a payphone and saying, hey, that guy you're looking for, Steve Murphy, he's on the corner of walking, don't walk right now. FBI swoops in and grabs him and those people get however many millions of dollars. Like, well, if they're getting that for that, like we got to compete somehow. Like our, our guys are outing themselves. They, got, they should be eligible for the same type of thing. That's where some of the thought process came in. Yeah. And the other thing too is you made a, I want to make a distinction because people think this is not taxpayer money when you're talking, it's coming from, we're talking asset forfeiture. We're talking about money, property, things that you're seized. The whole thing behind this, right, is that it's the bad guys financing the capture of other bad guys. Yeah. And to be clear, I I purposely made the point to show that it was uh, like a DOJ fund. We don't control it because, um, you know, there's a lot of safeguards put in so that there's no, there's no financial benefit, uh, for wanting to do this. Like you can't do a case to even say, well, then our group will have the best cars out there. You know, that's, that's just not how it works. We don't get to keep directly uh, anything that we seize. Um, it, it all would come from this asset for forfeiture fund um, under, under just like a very few incredibly regulated like uh, exemptions. Yeah. And that, I just wanted to make people make sure because 
this is a murky world, but th- even in a murky world, there's a lot of clear red lines. You cannot cross things you cannot do. And like you say, a lot of people think, hey, look, you guys, DEA does get a reputation for being cowboys because of the way you operate. But the point you were making is we might break a few internal rules or we may not always follow you know, some of our own orders, but we're, we're not out there violating United States law or other countries' law because you got to live to fight another day. And you can't do that if you're in orange or you can't do that if you get kicked out of a country, if you've been what they call PNG, you know, persona non grata, very tough to continue an operation if you you know, thumb your nose at uh, your laws or other countries' laws. Well, yeah, and, and, you know, maybe you win a battle and lose the war. You're never welcome back in that country to do an op. I mean, we look, we only succeed. In, one point I want to make sure I, I did get across, there's unbelievable number of good people that made this happen. Like, I'm one of many, many, uh, from DEA agents stationed all throughout the world. Foreign cops, I mean, the, the foreign cops I've worked at probably – Five different countries, at least, were remarkable. I, just remarkable. There are people that have been in Victor Trail for years that did unbelievable work, just uncovering up enough to even think about going after Gallon. Guys like Doug Farah, who wrote a book on him, super guy. Um, so you know, you're absolutely right. And and the other thing people don't realize about us is we don't just like dive into these and uh, and figure it out as we go along. When you want to do an operation like this, you have to write up a proposal. Um, it's the proposal to do a sensitive activity and it goes to a committee that's got attorneys involved, you know, representatives throughout DOJ. Um, there's other, there's the foreign country that it's going to be involved in. Our, our folks, uh, our diplomats have to weigh in. There's a lot of thought that goes into this. And, uh, I, you know, certainly don't feel like I'm giving away any secrets. I hope it, it, it comes out in a good way because my point is it's very well thought out. There's, it's a huge risk reward calculus that goes on. And um, and and some of them, quite frankly, are shot down. Just say, no, you could never do that in country A. Uh, we'd lose our relationship forever. Um, and it might be like, yes, you can do it in country B because either the relationship's so broken, you're not hurting anything, or um, they're a willing participant. Their laws are a little more flexible there, or or they're they're. Um, the, the favor that we curry with them is very important to them. So they're willing to really try to make it happen. Yeah. And an, another important aspect too, is you can't open these cases either unless there's a U.S. attorney on the other side. Yeah. If you do this, we will prosecute. You just don't go out and start opening up a case. Yeah. Don't even get me started. Cause uh, if uh, <laughs> you want me to talk about the Southern district of New York, I'll be here for, for three hours. It's, um, it's, it's a uh, sacred ground up there. It's a hallowed place. And, and I, uh, my heart will always be in there. I, um, the, the prosecutors on this case, Brendan uh, McGuire and Anjan Sani, uh, just two good friends to this day. Uh, Preet Bharara was United States Attorney at the time. It's the best. Guys like Boyd Johnson, uh, on and on. I feel like I'm cheating if I give any more names because I'll forget 10 others. They're just, um, man, I, I felt more comfortable walking in the halls of Southern District New York than I did in DEA offices at times in my career. They were, they were just unbelievable brothers and sisters and uh, the best prosecutors in the world. Prosecutors are not knowing, not known for being um, risk tolerant generally. And these guys just hung it all out to drive, threaten their own careers at times. Like if it doesn't go right they're they're not going to look good. And uh, cause man, let me tell you something. Prosecutors don't like um, putting Surprises. their name on something. Yeah. They don't <laughs> like putting their name on something that, that doesn't turn out well. And they don't like losing cases even more. Uh, so without them, in a million years, this never happens. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. You've got several barriers you have to cross, but one of the biggest ones is if we bring this case, will somebody prosecute it? Because otherwise, it's an academic exercise, and you're not going to engage uh, you know, in it unless we can actually prosecute whoever it is, the target at the end of this op. 
Yeah, you know, that's right. And I think uh, in this case, I think one of the things that helped us really get started, we, we'd had the Monzer success in the Southern District already. So we had a track record. They're getting into this. Um, and in fact, at this time, this is when the, uh, up in Southern District of New York, they merged the international narcotics and the terrorism sections because these cases we were bringing them ended up needing a prosecutor from both uh, divisions on there. So they just merged the divisions. They realized that that's kind of the way this transnational crime was going. And um, but I think one of the things that may have even helped us is when you know people, everybody that heard this case at the beginning thought the same thing. I mean, Brendan and Anjan weren't going to walk away. They wanted to be part of it, but at the same time, anybody that heard it would be like, "You think you're going to do what? Okay, good <laughs> luck." It's like say yes because it's not costing us anything. They're never going to do it in a million years. It's anyway, like driving right? by an accident. Nobody wants to get involved, but everybody wants to stare. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think a lot of people's attitude is like, "It costs us nothing to say yes because we're never going to have to do it in the first place." And um, you know, just so we don't forget to get to it, there's a funny point at the end um, where we actually, Victor communicates with our undercovers via email. And, uh, and, and we'll, get, we'll get back and try to tell it in order, but yeah. I'd be remiss if I didn't point it out. He, um, when he sends the email, we, we, we do a subpoena and we get the, the information on the email account. It's a, I believe it was a Gmail account. And the subscriber's name was Victor Boot. And Ed O'Callaghan, who ended up, you know, very high position in the Department of Justice, but he, at the time he was the head of the terrorism unit in the Southern District of New York. He, we get that back, report the, the findings get reported to him, and Ed, Ed O'Callaghan says, oh, "What the hell did these guys do? Sprinkle fairy dust all over this? Like, there is no way that that account was under his real name." But I mean, it was. It's just. And, but you know, I also say, and I've always said, I don't believe that's a coincidence. I think Victor loved being Victor. I think he loved being Victor Boot. And he was tired of being told he couldn't be him. After that 2002 interview, which was kind of a mistake, but he wanted to, I think he wanted the recognition. He wanted to be thought of as a player in this game. And he did that 2002 interview, you know, which was in Russia, in the Russian radio station and kind of put him on the map. Well, let's talk about that because you're, you now had this meeting in uh, Copenhagen and now you're talking about Curacao. And so, so let's talk about now you're getting the meeting ready for uh, Curacao, which this one's going to be January 8th, 2008. You know, you're planning for this, you, but you have to reach out to some other people right now. Now that you're starting to get this plan, like you say, it's very fluid, but you know, you need some other players because you just said FARC, right? So if you're going to be the FARC, you got to have, got to have some people who look like they could be with FARC. Yeah. I mean, we had, uh, we had two guys in our stable ready to go, um, uh, one was Carlos, and um, the other is a guy we, we called for the case. We called him Comandante. El Comandante. And, yeah, I salute exactly. as I say that. You can't say and, that I am saluting. <laughs> and, you know, the funny thing thing is, uh, you know, Carlos was a, in, in, the, in the roles was the subordinate. He was kind of the, the front man, and he would never refer to him as anything but Comandante in their dealings. You know, showed him respect, and uh, it was well thought out. And, and he really did have a, uh, a history of some gun running back in the day. Um, with groups like the FARC down there. So he could really talk the talk. He was the, the genuine article, uh, 100% real deal. And, um, you know, Carlos himself back in the day, and it's been reported, there's newspaper articles and stuff. He'd, he'd had an early run-in, decided, uh, um, you know, with some, with some Central American trafficking organizations and decided uh, he needed a, a different team. And he joined, he'd been with DEA for, for years and just the best, just the best, man. Um, well, he had so, a nickname, though, that Murph knows, too. Uh, Carlos, originally, uh, he earned the nickname El Mexicano, El Mexicano, but that actually originally belonged to who, Murph? To uh, Rodriguez Gacha, who was the original member of the Medellin cartel. 
So this is a small, that was a test too. Yeah, you know, I just wanted to see if you were paying attention. You do fall asleep <laughs> during these sometimes, as you notice that. We got to wake them up every now and then. Well, I mute the mic so you can't hear me snoring. So it's, we're good. We're good. <laughs> yeah. So you've got El Mexicano. So now you're putting this together. So one of the things you do is you fly to Miami, kind of, you know, you're starting to planning before you fly down there. So how did that go? You're bringing all these guys together now. So how did that first test of personalities and bringing people together go down in Miami? Uh, look, Carlos and Comandante were a piece of cake. We put them together. They kind of came from the same culture and the same world overall. Um, Carlos is almost like a coach for us at this point. He'd just been through so many years with us. And so how do I analogize this? Look, if, for me to say something to those guys, it might be in one ear and out the other. Like, how could I possibly understand their life? I'm not, I'm not a Latino. I'm not from South America. Um, I'm a gringo from up here. Um, I'm, a, I'm an agent. I have this good cushy life in their head. I don't have the day. I don't understand what it's like. I, I can try. I could just never understand. Coming from a guy like Carlos says, look, I stood in your shoes. I was exactly where you are. I've been with these guys for how many years. I trust them. They will never let you down. I, I can't even tell you what that does when we're, we're trying to bring, put a team together. Uh, he would have his own powwows. I, I believe, <laughs> without a sitting there where you'd have to circle these guys back up and say, you got to fall in line, you know, like this is. A, so, for example, let's say, you know, it, when you have the maze of the prosecutors and it, it's hysterical because they'll be like, OK, when you get this recording, we need him to acknowledge that not only are there going to be arms, they're specifically going to be surface air missiles um, that you want to use them to uh, kill a bunch of Americans um, and that you're going to protect your cocaine laboratories with this uh, to protect your drug business because you make so much money in the United States on trafficking all these drugs that, you know, it's a lot to... And you're looking at them like, nobody talks like that. In like they, nobody's going to say that, you know? Um, but then these guys were just, you know, would be expert at, at figuring out a way to get like that same message across without necessarily saying exactly that. Yeah, because you don't um, want to make it sound like a contrived statement. It's like, oh, here he is. For the purposes of the recording, can you say that you want to kill Americans with surface-to-air missiles? No, it never goes like that. But that's why what you just said right there, you have to have a lot of trust in people who are not DEA agents. I mean, you are literally putting your lives in their hands as well, because if this thing goes south, everybody's wrapped up in it. Yeah, no, 100%. And so you have to figure out how we can get, you know, the prosecutors exactly what they need, what these guys still sound incredible. Uh, and again, this case is easy to talk about because everything got put out in trial. That's why we're able to talk about it, right? If you look at uh, the recording of that last meeting, you know, it's masterful. Uh, at one point, you know, the commandante turns to Victor. Victor said, you know, I have whatever the number was, you know, however many, 10,000 AKs ready for you right now. And he looked at me and said, you think I'm stupid? You think you don't think I see these gringo pilots in the Black Hawk helicopters flying Colombian troops around, putting them here and there, attacking my people? It's like the second one of them gets taken out, they're going to run just like they did in Vietnam. But I can't shoot him down with an AK-47. But he's literally yelling at him. He's pounding his fist on the table. And Victor basically says, you know, like, whoa, slow down, man. I've got 700 of them, 700 surface air missiles waiting for you right now. Yeah. Your enemy is my enemy. United States is my enemy, too. And so you're, you're reading this after, like, oh, my God. That's getting into the bus. So, But what we're doing now is setting the whole stage for yeah. this, which is your meeting now. So you're flying to Miami. It seems like Carlos and Mike you know, seem to mesh pretty well, you know, considering personalities. But now you fly yeah. to Curacao. Yep. But you're doing a very important thing, though, in Curacao. A lot of people need to understand. You talk about firewalling off, right? So 
it's not like everybody's hanging together and doing stuff. When you get down there, now you're really in your role. So, I mean, you guys are in one place and the, the rest of the team is in another. How does that work? Walk folks through about how this meeting in Curacao looked like and how it went down. Well, you know, like I described it, it's the perfect locale and it's tropical. It's right off the coast. So it's a logical place. And um, looks, Smalling hadn't had the easiest life and uh, being flown down there and, and, you know, good meal on the beach. I mean, he's in heaven, right? He's relaxed. And so, uh, look, we go over a game plan. We tell the, tell them, uh, tell our guys the kind of things that we, we need to go down at the meeting, uh, where we're ultimately trying to get to. And so just pretty much what has to be achieved just for that first meeting. And, um, they get it. And then, um, you know, we send them out, they've got some devices used to record and, um, we send them out to do God's work. And, uh, and then we're going to not going to have any, we'll, we'll make a plan, you know, clean yourselves after such and such a time we'll meet if we're secure and here's how we'll do it. And, um, so they went out and held the meeting, but it, it, it's outside. It's, it's in, you know, the beach area down there. So we're able to kind of like blend it. And look, part of the beauty of this place is it's a place where we could actually go. It's a resort area, right? So a bunch of gringos down there aren't just going to stick aren't out. Sticking out yeah. So we could actually kind of get eyes on and actually watch, see them meet from a distance. You just made a statement, clean yourself. Can you explain that? Yeah. So, you know, after the meeting, it's not like as soon as you break, let's just go meet or, you know, we'll meet outside or whatever. It's like, um, just make sure that there's no counter surveillance on you, that these guys aren't watching you, that they didn't follow you away from the meeting. Um, if we have to, it doesn't matter if it takes hours, like, you know, we'll meet when everybody feels secure and here's how we'll do it. So we would either have a secure way to kind of talk and meet or, um, um, or just pick a location, say it's such and such a time. If everyone's clean, we'll be waiting there for you. And you come when you feel comfortable that, uh, that you're secure, you, you, you come by and then we'll, we'll see what you got. Uh, either that, or I thought you were messy eaters when you said, get yourself clean, like go wash your hands and your face and then we'll all meet up. So you know, that's, that's often the case too. <laughs> you got to remember Morgan's from Kansas. So yeah. we got to give him some hey, leeway don't, here. Don't, don't talk bad about farmers with your mouthful there, Murph. So, uh, <laughs> but, but I thought one of the interesting things that came out of this though too, is cause Lou was down there. Uh, you know, Wim was down there cause Wim was your partner on this. So tell us about your partner and tell us about Lou. Cause I have an interesting conversation I want to ask you about between Lou and Mike. <laughs> I think I know where this is going. Oh, yes, you uh, do. <laughs> yeah, well, I, so again, I, there's people that definitely always need shout outs. Brian Dodd was originally my boss when I started this. Uh, probably the smartest guy I ever worked for in DEA. One of the best people you ever meet in your life. Um, and then one, as the case got started, that's when the 960 group split off. And then Lou ended up becoming the boss of the 960 group. So now Lou's in charge of the investigation. Um, Brian had assigned Wim to work it with me. Uh, so he was already like the co-case agent. And, um, uh, yeah, so we get down there to curse. I think I know where you're going with this. Uh, women and I were, you know, pretty much inseparable for a couple of years just prior to this working another case. And then this one, we were you know, more than, more than we ever wanted to be at 2008. I certainly spent more time with Wim Brown than I did with my wife, um, for better or for worse. And, um, yeah, so he, uh, so we, we get down. Women and I had been doing everything kind of on our own, but this was also gonna be the first chance for for Lou to meet. Um, he'd met some of the other guys for him to meet the bear, and uh, in the same, <laughs> <laughs> the same the test same, is coming yeah, up. But probably even more severe. And uh, if you know Lou, he's a great guy, and like all of us, Lou's type A, and he's a fighter. You know, Lou doesn't like being. You know, like there's all that saying, you got to get punched in the mouth and see if you, you're okay with the taste of your own blood. Lou has no problem with the taste of his own blood. You know, he gets punched in the mouth. He's coming right back swinging. So, so uh, 
Bear just lays into him. I mean, we're in the room, like, I think women and I were sitting with our mouths hanging wide open, like, ready to fall off the bed, like, oh my God, this whole thing's going to shit. Like, I don't even know if I can put this back together. Like, Bear just starts, like, accusing of this or that and telling me he doesn't like him, doesn't how he's handling this or that. And uh, so finally, I, we have to separate him. And I think I pulled Bear aside and in the bathroom. I was like, what are you doing? He's like, and he basically la- starts laughing. He's basically, it's just a test. I got to make sure he's got the goods. And I'm like, listen, that guy's about to punch you in the face. Like, uh, he's got the goods. Trust <laughs> me. If you trust me at all now, we got, I think you do. Like, and then we put him back together and, and quickly got, you know, healed over. But I, 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 for, about, for about 10 minutes, I thought it was over. I thought Lou was going to say, no way, no way you're doing this with this guy. And we were all going to walk away. But uh, both sides, and look, Lou's no dummy either, right? I think he had a... He had to stand his ground, but I think he pretty quickly had a had an idea of what was going on. Well, now hold on, you're not telling the That's whole story right. because Mike basically said he did this because he didn't want to be dog fucked by Lou, and this became kind of the operational phrase because Carlos couldn't say it, so. He says, "Oh, so it, he's fuck of the dog." So this kind of became the operational phrase. <laughs> what I, are you looking around for? The book. Let me see if I got the right one. Hang on. Okay. <laughs> so while he's doing that. He's actually getting um, Operation Relentless. Is that the one? Yeah. So he's got Operation Relentless. He's pulling it off of his bookshelf. We're doing this in real time, right? So he's pulling it off of his book. Oh, here's the, you got the inscription. Oh, this is great. Uh, so Bear referred to me as Polsky. To this day, that's what he calls me. In fact, so here's a good story. Wim's, Wim is Dutch by uh, heritage. That's why he's Wim and not William or Bill. And uh, so right off the bat, Bear named us uh, Polsky and Dutch instead of like Starsky and Hutch. He called us <laughs> Starsky and Hutch. Polsky and Dutch. And uh, so it says, hey, Polsky, enjoy the read as much as I enjoyed working with you. Remember, it's dog fuck that makes us different, Papa Bear. Hey, hold that, hold that up to the screen. That's great. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so what that means, essentially, he just, uh, he just explained it to me a couple times. It's just hard to put it in his words. Um, and I, if you notice, I'm actually trying to be good about cursing on this, but there's no other way to say it in this instance. Oh, this is going to have an explicit yeah. tag no matter what. It, somewhat early on, he basically told me, you know, like, you're okay. You've got dog fuck in you. And I don't even know what I said back then. I was like, I, am I supposed to take that as a compliment? And he goes, <laughs> he goes, hell yeah, you either have it or you don't. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He goes, let me ask you a question. You put two dogs together. Do you have to teach them how to fuck? And I was like, no. He goes, they just know how to do it. You either know how to do it or you don't. You're either born with it or you're not. You were born with it. You've got dog fuck. I said, <laughs> I said Which what? then, Carlos, in his uh, Spanish tradition, he couldn't quite say it, so it, it became fuck of the it dog. Became, exactly. It became fuck of the exactly. I, I, I guess that's a British thing, right? <laughs> you made me think of that. I, I hadn't thought about that in ages. He did. Because, you know, why someone... Someone tried to say it back to him, <laughs> and he said, "He said something about someone having fuck of the dog." And Bear looked at me and said, "What? It's, you know, it's dog fuck? Oh my god!" Yeah. So funny. So times. you knew you were off to <laughs> that. So that that was the fun part about reading some of this stuff. You just, but it's those little things that you know you look back and you remember. And go, man. So unique, you know, just that was the operational phrase that became kind of your uh, tagline. Well, there, so, there's uh, this other yeah. thing that he would always say, and it, it actually sticks with me today. He would always say, uh, Bear would always say, thoughts become things. And 
Um, you know, the example he give, like sitting in your office, he'd say, do you see that chair you're sitting in? Do you see those glasses Murph's wearing? He's like, somebody had an idea to make that. That didn't exist at one time. Somebody had an idea. He goes, we have an idea. If you think, so he believes in, you know, he's not like too far out there, not black magic, but in the, you know, positive energy, positive thinking, like nothing great ever happened unless somebody put their mind to it is probably another way to say it. And he would always say that if we're down and out, he'd always say, Polsky, thoughts become things. And, uh, you know, he was right. It's hard to doubt the guy. Polsky and Dutch, man. That's, that's funny. <laughs> we're going to have to turn that into a T-shirt. Polsky and Dutch, the, the original Starsky and Hutch. Well, it's like, Morgan, it's like I always say, you know, all stereotypes are based like just if not a little bit uh, on truth, except for the one about Pollock's being stupid. That one is not grounded in any truth whatsoever. <laughs> Is that because your name ends in an I, too? Is that why I you're saying that? My Z. Yeah, because my name has 15 <laughs> letters, brother. Oh, man. Well, that, speaking of Dutch, it's kind of like I had a buddy, too. You know, J. Verhorvert, you know, Dutch. You know, that's common spelling. Hey, uh, but so you, so this gets set up, but then you're setting this whole thing up, and one of the keystones of this whole operation that day is to have the meeting with El Comandante the next morning, right? Yeah. So walk us through that. You're bringing – now you – because – Everybody thinks, well, let's everybody's getting together. No, you this is staging. This is like a play. Yeah. You guys are staging things out. To meet El Comandante, you've got to jump through some hoops because you just don't get to meet with him. You have to, no. you know, that there's a process, 100%. right? And so, but you know, there's also language barriers. You know, um, Carlos's English is fantastic, uh, native Spanish speaker, uh, Comandante, not as much. So there's just a lot of factors you're taking into like why you would do with this. But one of the things is because, you know. Carlos was the guy, like he was so good at setting the table. So there's certain things that you want him to just have set up, um, ready to go, feeling out, maybe that'll help be ready for a few contingencies. Um, and then secondly, if you only have one meeting and everything's settled and decided, you don't get everything you want, you don't get everything you want on tape, then you got to come up with a reason why you meet again. Like, hey, can we do that again? Like, we didn't like that first take, right? So <laughs> you want you want that ability to kind of, Figure out now we know a lot more about this guy we're dealing with, uh, maybe his vulnerabilities, um, maybe a better idea of what the deal could be. Uh, we might not want to tailor it the way we originally did. We might have had an idea to go to A, now we want to go to B. So it just gives us a lot more ability to kind of recoil a little bit and, um, and come back swinging. And, and so we wanted to build in from, the, from get uh, this idea that like there's always going to be two minutes. It's not going to be a surprise then. We're not changing anything to this guy. It's like when you get to meet this guy tomorrow – and you can learn a lot about your your character, the target you're dealing with um, in the course of that first meeting and then really use it, build up the second character to be introduced, Commandante, to, to kind of hit that point with them. Yeah, and that's so you're having you, so they you do that, you have that meeting the next morning. I think it goes pretty well, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it went great. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, I might be mixing up my days, but I think it was after that that next meeting. Um, the, the Dutch actually picked up a call that night from uh, from Smolian where he, he called back to Mother Russia and said, uh, you know, we got well, deal. Wasn't that on the phone that was given to him as courtesy of FARC, but was actually a DEA phone and you were monitoring everything, you sneaky little well, bastard? See, you again, Morgan, if you're going to make it easy for me, I, I, I try to protect a few things and you unprotect them, right? Uh, yeah, you know, this is all no, open source. I apologize for the ability to read and download no. books off of Amazon and brother, Prime. you're just making my life easy. I'm teasing you. You're making it. You're you're clearing my conscience as we speak. Uh, no, uh, yeah. So there was obviously a great deal of thought, but and that kind of goes back to what I mentioned to you 
uh, about places where we had some really trusted partners. Uh, I had a good friend, John Flickinger, who was, who was uh, one of our guys are, are um, down there in Curacao. And um, so he, I knew that was a place we could operate because I knew we had a phenomenal DEA agent there that could just get stuff done. And, um, and I'd spoken to Flick to set it up, and, and he had an unbelievable um, – one of the guys in my group in the BIU had done had done a tour in Curacao, so I knew that they had some great cops. And this one cop uh, was standing by for us. Uh, and I don't want to say his name, put him out there, but he, uh, we knew that we just had a trusted counterpart that, that could get it done. And so the whole idea would be like, look, buy the book. We're, we want respect everybody's laws, respect our laws. We want prosecutable prosecutable evidence. So we already had a court order waiting on this phone. Um, that was uh, handed to Smalley and like, hey, we want to make your life easy. Here's a phone you can use while you're here. He thinks the red carpet's getting rolled out for him, but in reality, we just want to make sure we could capture those uh, transmissions. Well, and that's and, and obviously you did, like you said, because after this meeting, uh, Smolian goes back to Russia to meet with Viktor, and that's where things kind of get rolling, right? I mean, that's kind of like Viktor's taking the temperature, saying, is this deal really real? Because you're setting this also up for the next meeting in Copenhagen in January of 2008, where you guys all get back together again, because at, at some point, Victor's not a dummy. Like you say, he's going to be doing some research. They've even Smolian said, I've got to know that you guys are really f- FARC. You know, how do I know that you're really FARC? So that was kind of, the, there's a whole trust issue, of, you know, from both yeah, sides. And look, we had all those contingencies ready. In fact, you know, when Victor came to the first meeting, uh, I know I keep jumping ahead, but you're just opening up these these segues to it. When Victor came to the first as a, as, a, as I should do, being the host that I am, you know, with Murphy's able assistance yeah. here hello, when he's away. Hello. Wait a minute. You're telling me Murphy's on this call? Hey, there he is. What's up, brother? Uh, no. He, he's just the eye candy. Yeah. Um, yeah, v- Victor had actually, uh, I think on his computer, we found like a, um, he had downloaded a, a hierarchy of the FARC, like that was public, pictures and all. And so he wanted to see if this guy was on there, which was very easy to get out of. It's like, if he was one of the guys on there, he wouldn't be one of the guys traveling. Like this guy's off the radar, which is why we're comfortable traveling. Um, Copenhagen, uh, and it is Hagen, um, was, uh, <laughs> came, came out like that was just incredibly fortuitous to us. Because if you look at, if you were to pull out the map and look at um, where Scandinavia is in relation to Moscow, it every reason, small he wanted to take the guys to Moscow. Like we're not going there in a million years. Um, and and look, but you can't just say no, or you can't say, well, I'm scared to go there. Like, why are they not going to go? And so, you know, Carlos would say something like, listen, a guy that conducts the business I have to do, I have to go in and out of a lot of countries. Do you think having a stamp into, into Russia is good for my business in a million years? I'm not having that stamp on my passport. He's, you know, he's like the, the, the CIA would be all over me in a heartbeat, tracking everywhere I went if I went there. And that's how we were able to keep out of, you know, multiple countries, like why we would say we just wouldn't do it. It's like too much. I think one of the places they said is, you know, UAE, like go to UAE, it might as well be a CIA storefront. The second I'm there, there's going to be cameras all over me. I'm not going there. So, um, you know, we had a reason why we wouldn't go some places and say, well, like, you know what? One of one of the places we collect a lot of our drug men- so. In theory, like if you're a real drug trafficking organization, you have your points throughout the world where you tend to kind of count your money, collect your money. And, um, you know, this made it clear that they, they, you know, some of the places they operated up there just happened to be great places for us. Right. So they'd say, I have some business. So we have some accounts to settle up in Copenhagen. I'll tell you what. You go talk to the boss and we'll meet you over there. That's a place we're really comfortable. We got some cops paid off. Nobody bothers us. We know we're safe there. 
So great, it made perfect sense. Logistically, it's, you know, uh, on, in terms of the big map, it's just a stone's throw from, from Russia. So it, it worked out really well. But the challenge, though, was Victor was having tr- trouble traveling at that point himself, right? I mean, getting visas, getting out of the country. Uh, he had had assets uh, frozen, and he was obviously, you know, on a uh, uh, watch list of some type. So how how did that add to the complexity of trying to make this deal happen? Because Victor would suggest something. You'd say, no, we can't do that. I mean, you're really working through a lot of different places because it leads out of that meeting, right? Um, you, the net, One of the next meetings we'll talk about, too, is in Bucharest, uh, yeah. Romania. We agree that it's called Bucharest, right? Not Bucharest. No, Bucharest. Bucharest. Perfect. Bucharest. Bucharest. <laughs> oh, very you're, good. You're getting you know. better as it goes on, brother. But but Carlos did one thing, and his one piece of advice I thought was just excellent, and it could only come from somebody like him, because when things start to go south, Carlos kept saying, appeal to their greed. No matter what they do, appeal to their yeah, greed. No, that's that's a hundred percent. We had some uh, we had some great meetings in Copenhagen, um, <laughs> and that that, that was never going to be uh, the ground finale. That was just a really great base of operations for us to be able to to do some stuff, uh, feel it out. Um, but it quickly, you know, quickly realized we couldn't get Victor there, and quite frankly, it wouldn't have been the best place to try to do the actual rest. So. But we gained a tremendous amount of insight from Smalley and really set up the broader terms of the deal, what kind of arms. Um, and, and he had just been, um, been to Russia, so we really knew it was real. And he was coming back with good information on what Victor could supply. And um, so the whole idea was that's when they put out that Romania was one of their money collection points, that there was actually a large amount of uh, drug proceeds that had just been collected there that they had to go sit on and make sure it got handed off. Um, and in reality, you're not going to have 10 different people part of that. You'll lose, you know, however much your money every time, right? So we, they said we have to oversee this collection and uh, money laundering operation. It'd be perfect place. Um, so why Romania? Well, for us, again, just unbelievable. Some of the, the, the best cops I've ever met in my life. These guys were just utterly amazing. Um, you know, we're having a meeting over there uh, and... We proposed something on what we're going to have to try to do to make this work, and the room goes quiet. And the the head the head cop uh, Jean sitting there, and he's really quiet and he's pensive and he's he doesn't have a good look on his face. So I'm like, and so I finally said something like, "Oh, that was a bad idea, huh? We can't do that." And he says, looks at me, he says, "No, no, of, of course we can do. It. We are border police. We can do anything. We are border police." And you know, we all start laughing, and that's when I kind of got some insight <laughs> into the guy. Like he's just. He was just had his wheels turning to figure out how we'd make this work. So um, same idea. We get to Romania. There was uh, some, some quote unquote, a secure network of phones that they should only use. And so someone got handed a phone. And the same idea, like only talk to us or to him on us. Don't go talking to everybody else. And so we, you know, we, uh, these can't be, these can't be tapped. We got people paid off here. Same idea. The uh, Romanians had a judicial order and, um, you know, what was your confidence level that the deal at that point? What was your confidence level that the deal was going to get done in Bucharest? I mean, how confident were you going into this that Bucharest was going to be the uh, uh, end game? I here? went with uh, five days of close, and on <laughs> day seventeen, after turning my shirts inside and out, not to mention the rest of my clothes, like and your underwear, <laughs> trying yeah. to stay away from three or four times each. Like uh, first side wasn't that bad, actually. Uh, yeah, we. Uh, Did you go visit some department uh, stores yeah, and get some absolutely. fresh linen I think laundry? I, a, you know, I think I had three different shirts that the Romanian flag on them, and uh, um, no, we we really were. We knew it was a place he was comfortable, and so part of how we knew that is I I opened by 
we're talking about Boyako, talking about a partner of Victor's, Ali Hijazi. Ali had a son, Salim Youssef, that was based in Romania and ran an airline for Victor called Mia Air. So uh, Victor had a, a subsidiary airline there. And we knew that. So we knew he did business there. We knew he had to be comfortable to do business there. Um, and we had every expectation. And, and listen, he was coming. He, um, he uh, just made it very clear he's coming. He just had to get a visa. He was taking care of that. There was going to be no problems. And then we later, you know, coming to find that Salim Youssef uh, warned him off and said, don't come in here. It's, it's not safe for you here. How did Salim, was that just intuition on Salim's part or did he have info, you think? You know, that's really unclear. I, I would think Salim being, you know, has potentially Hezbollah affiliated part of the world. Um, you know, he may have had his own people uh, hint to him, but as much as anything, it may have just been the lay of the land. I mean, uh, you know, they had already conducted some ops with us the remains, so it, it, it's really hard to say. I just know that at the 11th hour, uh, and I mean... Every day we thought we fought through it and he's coming. There was, there was one or two days we were sure he's coming. And then it was just, it was heartbreaking when he wouldn't. Well, this had to be driving Mike up the wall because, like you say, he's one of the guys, well, you gave your word, you're going to be here. How was Mike taking this? Oh, man. It, it, there were some tense times. I mean, there was times where we were all yelling at each other. I, we were joking about that the other day. I think I finally just lost it one day and just started, you know, told everyone to, to keep their shit together and, like, you know, like, we'll get through this. But, I mean, it, we, we all got to each other. We're tired of seeing each other, quite frankly, you know. <laughs> but, you know, this is uh, having this thing, you know, when in narcotics we call it a hummer because it's humming along, right? But this is a testament to the greed factor, which is what you play up on when it comes to these narcotics traffickers. Because it's all about the money, right? It's all about the assets, the toys that they can go gather, you know, the the power. And so what amount of money were you d discussing spending with Victor Boot at this time? I want to say the deal was something like $10 million deal. Um, and, and the money was also how we were keeping them interested. Like, well, why can't you just come here? And we'd say, listen. And the guys would say, listen, we are sitting on however many millions of dollars here. We can't leave it till this transaction's finished that we're here for. Mm -hmm. There's nothing we can do. Um, and then we'd say, why can't you just come here? But he doesn't. He doesn't want to come right out and say, I have a problem. Like, you don't want to tell another bad guy, I have a problem. I'm being looked at by U.S. authorities, right? Yeah, because the last thing you want to do is know, oh, you're coming here and bringing all the cops with right. you. Oh, so great. It's just, it was this, like, really delicate dance going back and forth. Like, why can't you come here? I told you, I am not getting a Russian stamp on my passport. Why can't you come here? Well, I'm not sure it's really good for me there. Obviously, you've read about me. I have to be careful where I'm at. So there's this back and forth. But then at the, at the end, we just realized he wasn't coming. And um, and so we gave him the order to walk away. And we all fought internally about that. If it was time, if it wasn't time, we just said, like, listen, um, this is going to happen, but we can't be afraid to walk away. Bad guys walk away from deals all the time. We'll actually we'll look less like cops if we walk away. When you keep pushing too hard through danger, when everybody knows you shouldn't do it, whatever, you really start to look like a cop. So we're like, we should be the ones to say, screw this, we're out. Um, because we'll look more righteous that way. And that's, that's ultimately after, you know, 17 days, what we did is said, we had Carl's call him and say, uh, um, you know, and I, I, listen, I believe these are some of the first times, at least judicially that boot had ever been recorded. So just getting some of these recordings was a high in and of itself. That's when we knew we were really in the game. Um, and so Carlos basically called him and said, listen, you know, the commandante is in a bad place. He misses the jungle. He hates it here. Uh, he's not waiting anymore. I'm taking him home. I can't stand another day here with him. We'll, uh, we'll reconnect at a later date. You know how to get me. Here's my email and everything else. And, uh, but we're out of here. And, and we took off. 
But but going back to Boots' greed here, he's getting you know what, what you believe is probably inside information from somebody in the country, and he's still not saying, "Oh, you know what? This is getting too. Uh, it's just I'm not comfortable with this." Yeah, that well, greed factor is so strong. It, it is, except I don't think that the information was you know to the degree he got any whatever he's warned off of. I think the information was like it's not like hey the U.S. is looking at you. There's this thing. It's look. It's more like Romania is not a great place for you. And in fairness, he was they he was on the radar there because of the airline, because of Salim Youssef, because of all his arms dealings, because they were not, you know, as opposed to Ukraine, where there's so much Russian influence, there was more, I think, of a pushback from Romania. So there's like, I think it was more about not being welcome in Romania than having a true legal problem like with us or anybody else. Yeah, it's just kind of that intuition, right? That sixth sense. You go, ah, maybe we shouldn't be doing it here. But that kind of led then to... Um, having those discussions, right? Because he wanted to do Montenegro, but that wasn't going to pan out either because, like you say, nobody wanted to travel and bring stuff there. So eventually, eventually, like you said, Lou made the decision. You guys said, hey, we're going to walk away, but you came up with the idea of Thailand. How did that come about? What, you know, was that was that you guys? Or was that somebody else? How did that come about? Commandante were on the flight home, you know, however many hours home from, uh, from Europe. And um, we literally just kind of got the map out and said, you know, Let's just what, what would what places would make sense, and so we, like I think Victor threw out like I started to say before, like Montenegro, Cuba, um, Nicaragua. You know, Dan, President Daniel Ortega welcomed us with open arms. Uh, all very leftist, you know, communist leaning places, and and some of them are tough. Like, how do you say like? But if you're these guys, you know, like Nicaragua is pretty lawless. So how do you say no to that when? You're supposed to be with the FARC, who's a leftist Marxist organization. How do you say no to another leftist Marxist com- country? So we just had to come up with a creative reason, like with each of these places, too much U.S. attention, you know, whatever it was. And um, but we, so Ricardo and I got out, and I know where we had good people, and I know where we'd operated before, and I knew generally the laws of different places where I thought that we'd have a good shot at actually being able to extradite, and. Um, so we're getting out. I was like, well, what if we focus a little? So you look at Russia, you go one side over to Europe, the other side over to Asia, right? So he said, you know, looking at Asia, I said, well, what about Thailand? And uh, coming out, they said, man, there's every kind of bad deal in the world conducted in Bangkok. Like, it makes perfect sense, right? You know, arm. They even wrote an 80s song about it, One Night in uh, Bangkok. And there's all kinds of arms deals, everything, right? It's a Wild West town. And so, uh, you know, I said, he said, that would absolutely work. So. We got home and um, Carlos is hitting us up like almost every day. Like, let me reach out for him. I can make this happen. Like, nope, 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 nope. Sit. We, he has to make the first move. Like, we, this is going to work. You were making Victor sweat at this point, right? Because there had been an email. Uh, Victor had emailed and you guys let him dangle for like five or yeah, six days. We just, we just made him sit back. And, uh, and then finally he, you know, um, Finally, we let a, we let Carlos respond, and he's like, "Hey, uh, the commandante and I uh, just found out we got something to handle over in Bangkok, um, or, or maybe in Thailand. You know, any chance you could meet us there?" And the response was something to the effect of, "I love Bangkok, one of my favorite cities," and that's that's when you just knew it was on, right? And so uh, we immediately got with our, our office in Bangkok, started laying the, the groundwork, laying the groundwork with the Southern District of New York, and um, you know. Listen, the best evidence was going to come from the only meeting with Victor. So we really had to, uh, they really hung it out on the line. We had to have, we had to have the arrest warrant in order. Well, how do you, how do you have an arrest warrant? Well, you had to do a complaint. Like you have to charge him. 
You have to charge them with the crime that has to be set up at that meeting, right? Well, we'd had all these other recordings. I don't have anything too good from him specific, but we have all this other stuff, right? And that's when uh, I mentioned earlier the email. We pull a subpoena on the email account, and who's Names it under Victor Boot. And that's when, you know, the Southern District's like, you guys got to be kidding me. You're making this up at this point, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, it's never this good. No, but it was really beneficial because it's everything to help have enough confidence to charge with the idea being like, listen, if we don't get what we need out of the meeting, we walk away. We don't act on the papers, but we have to have the papers in order. So you have to have a good faith basis to have enough to charge. It's nothing you'd want to you know, go to trial with, it's always better by the time you get to trial. But um, it was going to have to be a really aggressive indictment just to have the, uh, the arrest and extradition paperwork be able to be lined up. It's almost like an anticipatory search warrant. You got to anticipate what's going to happen. Listen, that brings up a really good point. You know, um, there, there's stuff made in the media like, you know, if we only had it in for him. Why did we let his partner walk away? He showed up with his bodyguard, for lack of a better word, Mikhail Belozorowski, huge Belarusian guy. And um, we had to let him walk after the meeting. But there, the main reason was we didn't have any papers for him. We'd never heard of the guy before. The first time he came into all this was in Thailand. And so, you know, everyone's tried to make something sinister out of that. There's a really, I did not want to let this guy walk for two seconds. There's a really easy reason why he got to walk away. We didn't have the goods on him. Well, and it speaks to how Victor and his whole organization, how they, you know, you know, not no pun intended, been flying under the radar, you know, with all of their planes and everything else. I mean, the, his whole, th even though he started becoming more visible, but some of his dealings, everything for a long time, it was hard to know actually. And in fact, this gets into the documentary. We'll, we'll talk about this at the end, but I want to set the stage for this too, because uh, this one documentary says, well, you know, he was taking pictures all the time. No, at that point, there was only like a grainy passport photo and a photo from a Dutch journalist, I think, were the only pictures of Victor Boot that were, existed in the, I mean, it, that you could get access to at that right, point. Right, your point, like, yes, he was taking pictures, maybe his own camera. He was doing everything he could to get a, stay out of sight of anyone else's camera. He may have taken some home movies, but I mean, come on. It's not the same thing. He wasn't publishing them on the early version of YouTube, which if there was one, it's like, hey, I'm Victor Boot. I am arms trafficker. Please come arrest Comrade me. Comrade you know. Tube, right? Comrade. So, hey, so again, greed gets to everybody and you start, you start going back and forth. And so finally it's like, all right, man. I think the 29th, actually it was leap year, 29th of February, Carlos and Victor speak and they're on the phone together. And because Carlos now is roping, he's doing his act. He's reeling Victor in for this meeting in Thailand. Yeah. I mean, look, he's the one who came back. So now we know that we haven't pushed it too far and he's really the one into it. And uh, yeah, he just, you know, what's the old saying? Like an offer he couldn't refuse, you know? Um, but let's be fair. Sure, there's greed. I, I don't truly know what his exact financial condition was, right? But he'd been under years of sanctions as well. I mean, look, what's the point of doing sanctions on anybody? Like, well, you want to make them pay. You, don't, you want to take away their ill-gotten gains or stop them from profiting from their illegal activities. Those have a way, if you're trying to run a business, those have a way of taking their toll. You're running a cargo business and you can no longer be international. It's pretty hard to run an international cargo business. Yeah, cash flow is huge when you're, you know, when you're having to pay people and do stuff because a lot of people aren't going to take an IOU. You know, they want, yeah. you know, got to bring cash no, there, comrade. And, and look, and if you can't deal in U.S. dollars, the world gets even harder. There's a reason why Bitcoin has tried to take off, right? It's a shadow banking system, essentially. So, and there was there was one article I read where his his estimated wealth from his ill, you know, his arms business, transportation business, was worth as much as six billion 
dollars, not million, but billion dollars. So now if you've got these sanctions against him where that, that pot's got to go down and continue to do business, right? So he's, he's in it for the money. That's no, what this it, is all it, about. Exactly. That's why you do it, right? And it was a lucrative deal. And in the end, um, kind of gets to a point I made earlier. Once we, once we get there and negotiate with them, you know, there's not a huge spread to be made on selling the arms themselves. They're just not because there's so much available and they're not expensive anymore. So you're only going to make so much. He, he wanted to actually, he offered to sell them the actual aircraft that was going to be used. He wanted them to have to buy the aircraft that was going to be used. And that's where he was going to make a couple million dollars alone just off that aircraft sale. So it was the transportation and the aircraft in the in negotiation. He offered them, he said they got to start thinking up bigger, that he would sell them a bank. He would help them open a bank and they could start laundering their own money. Like, why are you paying all these people to do it? Hell, if I could have known I could have bought my own bank and been rich by now, I would have done that. Huh game over. Yeah, but when you got $112 to start with, it's kind of hard to buy a bank, right? I didn't know you could count that high, Murph. <laughs> so my Listen, wife told he me. He had his own ideas for how profitable this could be. And so we were walking into this with our with our ideas. He had his own ideas of what the negotiation should be. And uh, yeah, so... So next thing you know, it's off to Thailand. So let's talk about that now. So now, um, I mean, at this point, you got to be going, okay, th- I mean, this is now, you really are believing now because he's reached out. It's like you dangled it out there. It, and to me, it reeks a little bit of a desperation, which gets back to Steve's point about, you know, hey, how you, it's the greed, it's the money. And I think it's because if he was worth $6 billion and had access to $6 billion, Ten millions, nothing. And like I said, his net profit on that would have been much smaller than the ten million. Ten million is just the size of the deal because he's got to pay people for the arms, you know, and he's got to pay stuff. But but between February 29th and when you guys uh, start arriving, which is actually about March 4th, what kind of things were in motion? What what, what were your days like during those next uh, four to five days? We had to get we had to start getting you know the arrest paperwork ready for Thai. And we had a lot of coordination to do with our Thai office. We had to make sure that our, uh, that the, uh, that everybody, uh, had proper tra- uh, travel papers to be able to go in, um, which was not easy with, with some of the, uh, um, immigration status of some of the people involved. You know, we have them up there in the States and, you know, they're there on different types of visas. So we have to make sure that they can actually travel in and out under their passport, U.S. passport. We're used to being able to go anywhere, right? If you're carrying a Colombian passport, which we absolutely want you carrying if you're a Colombian for this op, but because all the drug trafficking, Colombians need a visa in most places to go. So there's just a lot of hurdles our office over there needed some time to, to set up the whole op to get the ties bought off on board. How will the arrest go? Which unit will we use? Are we going to be able to extradite immediately? Will it have to be a longer, more formal process? There's, so there's just a lot of machinations to get through in, the, in those coming days. So, um, that, I mean, that time went by like uh, the sitting and waiting once we got to Thailand was slow, it seemed like. But the time just to get ready to go, there was so much to do, um, so much to do with Southern District of New York just to get ready and to, to lay out all the contingencies. So. Um, yeah. But there's another term that goes with this. It's a military term, but you guys use it too. It's OPSEC, operational security. At this point, you've got to be really concerned about, you know, because the minute you start sharing with the ties, it's not that you don't trust them, but it's like every time you introduce somebody new into this, there's another potential leak. You know, every time something new gets introduced, there's another way that this thing can go south. What were your big concerns around OPSEC and around these things at this point? How tightly were you trying to control things? Well, listen, you're, you're, you're always worried about a place where this guy says he's comfortable too, right? Because the natural thought would be, well, he's got his own people there. Um, so we were really worried, knowing his intelligence background and everything else. We, 
a lot of thought went into like what devices would be used or, or are they going to try to scan them for any Wi-Fi? Um, and look, at the end of the day, you know, we had to coordinate with our own agencies and it's not like we thought anybody would purposely try to hurt us, but like anybody that you tell, period, there's a chance of a leak, an unintentional leak. You know, they have their own units or, you know, they have their own intelligence units that get shared with. So there was just, there was a, it was a really tense couple of weeks. I mean, definitely took a few years off my life. And one of the tensest days, and again, you got to tell me if this is correct. Didn't this operation almost get blown before Smolian even showed up because he ended up calling Mike Snow's wife? Yeah, God, you're taking me way back. There is, there is a couple of those. There's something that happened internally where we thought a leak could have occurred because of a cable going out that we were not happy with. Um, uh, because now, you know, it went out to like broad. So we could just pick one Thai agency, but now we knew some stuff had, had maybe gone out like a little broader. Um, and, uh, I, I do recall something to the effect of what you're talking about, but, um, you know, along those same lines, something else happened that made our life a little easier. Um, Smolian tried to cut bear out of the deal and, uh, he went back to him and, and Carlos brought this back to bear. And that was the point where Barrow's like, oh, now he just dug his own grave. Fuck him. He can go too, you know? Um, so it made the contingencies like a lot better. So we had to come up with a contingency where we could try to get Smolian straight out of there. Um, uh, and, and, you know, a different process for Victor. So there was a, there was a lot of planning that went into the whole thing. Yeah. Well, and that, that one conversation I was referring to, again, it comes out of the book and the movie, but it's like they're talking and, and uh, Mike's wife says, oh, congratulations, you know, and she's thinking, hey, you're about to do this uh, deal. He has, you know, th th they're talking past each other. They don't realize is that had this conversation continued, Mike's wife thought, Smolian was in on the off and he wasn't, he was the target of the uh, off. Yeah, that's right. Now, now, now you are bringing me back. Um, yeah. See, I told you we do research, no, man. This is do. like, you know, we're doing deep dives here. You, you do. <laughs> I mean, so much of it blurs together, but, uh, look, Bear is adept at like talking through. And at that point, I think Smolian was just so far, um, he was too into it. In he, this. He, he thought yeah. it was real. You know, I used to joke around a little bit and he was like Walter Mitty flying, uh, you know, uh, fighter planes back, uh, fight, you know, flying, flying against the Red Baron. He was just like in his own world on some of this. And, um, yeah, so. So you're, you're flying into Bangkok now. Now it's getting real. You guys come in, um, you know, obviously uh, around March 4th. You're trying to get things set up. Yeah, you're getting the team together. Walk us through these two days leading up to March 6th, which is the day Victor arrives in country. Yeah, so, um I mean, we just had marathon meetings with all the ties, what we're allowed to do, what we weren't allowed to do, how we we're going to record and make evidence, et cetera. And, um, and then it was just, you know, it was just a waiting game. And so um, it, it all led up to that day. We got up at our early breakfast. We go check things out at the hotel. And then um, I was, uh, I think I was standing by with one or two of the, of the undercovers. And then all of a sudden the tie, the, the, Look, we hoped they had a report that the that um, I think maybe that he was on the manifest or something to that effect. But we don't really know he's going to show up until all of a sudden, you know, we get a report from the ties like their advanced team out at the airport said the plane landed. He's on it. and He's going through customs as we speak. And that's when, you know, the, the chicken skin all goes up like you, you just you know, it's really I think that was the first time when I let my guard down enough to believe this was actually truly happening. You always tried to protect yourself a little bit until that point because uh, 
Look, until he arrived there, the odds are stacked against you. But um, yeah, he's because he's still got to show up. He's still got to say the right words and do the right things. Yeah. And the other thing you were concerned about, too, is because this is Victor, potentially, you know, intelligence uh, connections, GRU. He's he's not um, he's not new to doing this. You guys and this again, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys are so concerned about this, even with the Thai police doing surveillance. It was more like static surveillance. They weren't trying to trail him because you guys had a concern is that he would detect any kind of mobile count of surveillance. Yeah. And just imagine that. Right. Like. That's where we forget that, you know, we're the United States. We go into these places and we're like, hey, here's what we need you to do. You imagine someone coming into our country and saying, one of the most wanted men in the world's coming in. We want you to work with us. Let us do whatever we want. Kind of surround, kind of not. Here's exactly how you have to conduct surveillance. I mean, in this country, like, we even have a tribal federal government, like, you know, you know, you were on both sides, Morgan. <laughs> Feds come into a state and say, back off. The state the state police might be like, you can't tell us what to do. We're in Kansas. Yeah, one whatever. of the famous sayings was, I'm from the FBI. I'm here to help. Yeah, exactly. yeah Okay, you know, thank you very much. You so, know. and I, I think we forget that at times. They were amazing. And, and uh, it's a testament to uh, the relationship that our office or for years and years had formed in Thailand, fighting the drug war, going back to, you know, the, uh, the golden triangle when all the heroin was coming out of there. Um, just, it, it takes years of forging unbelievable partnerships to have that kind of trust. And they did. So they had maybe a checkpoint or two, but they told us he was here and we knew he was heading to the hotel. So, but now it's game time, no more interaction with the, with the sources, uh, at all. Everybody had their marching orders for what you have to try to accomplish at the meeting. Um, and right here, too, the other thing, too, let's make sure people understand, you are in a foreign country. You, What kind of authority do you have in a foreign country, and what kind of weapons are you carrying? I know the answer, but I want people to think that I'm asking you this really deep, penetrating question. Yeah, it's kind of a long, drawn-out answer. It's a none and none. Uh, <laughs> no, no authority, Which, no weapons uh, there. Uh, for, for us, especially traveling in, um, the only thing we were armed with was you know diplomatic passports because— uh, if things went bad um, for us ever, you know, they may have their own police units. I, I, I was later charged in Thailand um, by, uh, by Victor's folks. They got to some corrupt officials or whoever um, tried to charge me with the illegal wiretap, and I wasn't allowed to go back at a certain point. Um, so, oh, well, we're going to save this towards the end. Cause again, here you go. Sandbagging us again, yeah. Zach, you well, know, we're going to call you Zach, I the sandbagger. You, given the segues, <laughs> it's like, you know, that, that was the danger for us. We're, we're... Well, and, and the other great thing too, is when I went into Pakistan, that's one of the, that was one of the conditions we're not going over there on, you know, official passports. We want diplomatic passports. Cause now you're talking about ISI, you know, other folks like that is I want to get it. out. Of, I want to get out of jail free card. I might be held up for a while, but if, you know, if they take me in a back room, I want to know I've got some official. Pre- and that's the great thing about a dip passport, as I say, you know, it's like you are, um, there are certain things they can do to you, but basically at some point they have to turn you back over to your country. Well, yeah, that, and the, and the real hope is if it gets you nothing else, it just gets you to the embassy because the embassy is U.S. territory. So really all it's you're hoping it does, intimidate someone enough to, to, that you get to the embassy, uh, and then let them work out whatever they want to work out. So, well, let's but let's get back to the yeah. fun part of the story. So you, this this stuff's going down. Victor arrives in the hotel, like you say. You guys, everybody's got their roles. Let's walk through now the process. Victor gets there around eleven eleven thirty in the morning. Yeah, and so there's like a casual they, they greet, and there's a casual meeting, um, just kind of over like a light breakfast, uh, more like open air meeting. Uh, so who's so they? It's, Who are, uh, who's they? I don't think Commandante was at that one. I know the bear was. I think it was just the bear and Carlos. And, um, and, and Victor and his guy, and Smalley. And um, so the biggest thing that came out of that meeting is um, 
Victor Kana disregards Bear, and this does not go over well. And uh, he basically sends Bear out to get him a phone. He goes, could you run and get me a SIM card for my phone? And kind of almost treats him like, you know, like a little bit of an errand boy. That's how Bear took it. And uh, so Bear breaks off and he gets... Was that because Smolian had told him to keep, you know, Mike away from this? I think Smolian had his doubts. And uh, just going back in the day, he didn't have Victor's level of trust. And so Victor decided that he wasn't needed for the meeting. You know, whatever he got from his people is fine, but he wasn't needed for these negotiations. And I mean... I end up getting with Bear on the side, and he's incredibly offended, right? Um, he, uh, he calls me. We had some secure comms set up just for us to be able to communicate if we had to, and he's just pissed. And he's like, you know, who the F does he think he is? And he cuts me out and this, that, and I said, Bear, stop, stop. It's not a real deal, buddy. Like, you're forgetting. Like, <laughs> this is, It's not real. It's play acting. This yeah. is not a bad thing. You were not going to be integral to that meeting. He's like, well, how do you figure? And I was like, you did your job. You got us here. This way, with you not at the meeting, this gives me the perfect way to set up when, you know, they have their other meeting and they're done. Carlos can act like he's calling you, but instead, uh, or the commandante can act like they're calling you. But instead, they call me and just say, hey, Mike, you know, everything went great. Come on up. Well, it's time to celebrate. Which is referred to as the bus signal. Yeah, exactly. So, And once I told him that, he felt a little better because it still gave him a critical role. Um, But listen, he's type A like the rest of us. It was horrible for him not to be in the room. In fairness to him, he set the whole table and he wasn't allowed to eat. Um, So, yeah, so so at that meeting, they... um, Victor basically says, I'm going to get a conference room for us to have the real meeting. And that's when Carlos would bring the commandante in the whole bit. So he, he goes, he goes up and sets up conference room. Um, we give him like final instructions and, uh, and they go up to hold that meeting. But, but to hold that meeting, but the whole point about people think that you don't have every conference room wired in, in this hotel. No. So you guys are scrambling the minute you find out where this meeting's being held. What do you have to do in order to record this meeting? Well, that's just it. I mean, we don't know where the meeting, you know, Victor said, I'm going to get the conference room. At the end of the day, we don't truly know where this last meeting is going to be conducted till, till it all got decided. So um, we had some some gear that, that we gave them. Um, we actually went against, uh, look, there's much better stuff today, but we went against even trying to do video um, because we just felt like it was too, uh, it just, there was no risk reward. We already had eyes on them having arrived, like audio is really all we needed. And um, so we made all the. So where does the video come from then that's shown in the documentaries and the other stuff? Because it shows the video of everybody sitting in the conference room, uh, you know, kind of that black and white video. Is that was that staged for the documentary? Is that- yeah. Well, no. You're, I guess you're right. I guess that I guess we told them. So they, they we had several different things, and at the last second, you know, you're right. At the last second, Carlos comes in and he goes, he goes. Uh, He's like, I, I'm not afraid. I'm going to go ahead and use this. And we said, all right, you're good to go. We said, but really, all we other need, we had it backed up with, with another device. Um, and he said, don't worry about getting, you know, making sure you get all his face on and everything. All we really need is this other. And so what we were really playing off was, was, was the audio. You're 100% right. Um, and, and, and now that you even bring that up, I remember the last conversation, and, and Carlos almost unilaterally made that decision. I, I actually voted no. I was like, I don't even think we need it. We just got to make sure we get this off. And then I think the bigger argument was like, we need everything we can take the chance of getting. Um, and so he decided it was the first meeting that day that we didn't, we didn't have it. We only had the audio. Well, you know, the, uh, an attorney will tell a prosecutor will tell you the best, vi- the best evidence is video. The second best is audio. The third best is agent testimony. 
Yeah. No, that's 100% right. But at the end of the day, it was really going to be the audio, what he's physically agreeing to. Um, so really all the video did. I guess my point was all the video is doing is really proving that that's actually him. Um, but we could already do that. So. And, and you're getting the audio too. And he's, there's going to be some stuff we're talking about here in a little bit where he's writing down stuff. But look, look the meeting gets underway, right? So now there's this kind of back and forth going because you kind of, you have to lead into the discussions about what you need. And to your point, you don't want it to be entrapment. In other words, Victor kind of has to arrive at this conclusion in terms of what he can offer and what he can do. So uh, Commandante is telling him his needs. It's like, hey, we've got to be able to shoot these Americans and AK-47s don't work. And we've got to be able to blow things out of the sky and AK-47s don't work. So this discussion starts getting pretty deep into uh, and I'm not just talking about little pea shooters. We're talking about frickin' um, uh, RPGs, you know, rocket-propelled grenades. We're talking about um, dragging off sniper rifles. I mean, this is getting serious. Yeah, listen, we're both, they're, they're both supposed to be who they are. Victor's supposed to be the guy who can supply anything, and they're supposed to be the guys that need it. And going back to one of our earlier conversations about getting what the prosecutors want, there are certain things that are going to have to be covered in the meeting. It's got to be really clear that there's American interests involved. Um, it's got to be really clear that they're looking for surface-to-air missiles. Under the Patriot Act, that was its own charge, trafficking in surface-to-air missiles. Um, and so they just really artfully, they being, you know, the, the undercovers, just really artfully came up with ways to talk about this and elicit it out of him without um, raising all of his suspicions. And uh, that's where that's where Commandante was just, uh, I mean, it was really, it was genius. I mean... Um, listening to the tape, I couldn't believe what I was listening to. When he raises his voice and he starts pounding the tape, telling him, he says, you think I'm stupid? You think I can shoot down these Black, black, black Hawk helicopters with an AK-47? That's why I need surface-to-air missiles. And and the way he brought up the American interest is, you know, you don't think that I see these gringo helicopter pilots flying in and out of their little American bases down there? But the second we take, you know, conspiracy to kill Americans, the second we take a couple of them out, they're going to run just like they did in Vietnam. And it's like, wow, man, it was just brilliant the way he was able to, uh, you know, hide in plain sight. Well, and Mogadishu had not happened that, wasn't that far in the past either, yeah. where that's where the movie Black Hawk Down was uh, made out of too. You know, you've got uh, uh, several, I mean, many Americans killed in that. I think it was 26. Yeah. Yep. No, it was, uh, but let's be fair, people can paint whatever picture they, they want on it. You know, Judge Shira Shinlin made it pretty clear at the end when she sentenced him that she didn't love uh, sting operations. And she gave him the minimum mandatory, which in this case was 25 years. Uh, but he got less than Monzer. But that said, nobody held a gun to Victor's head. Nobody made him go to Thailand. And nobody made him declare the United States his enemy. And, uh, you know, he said that right on the tape. You, you know, we have a common enemy. This is my enemy, too. He was, he was fully engaged and fully prepared to carry out this deal. And, and let's give people just a quick laundry list, the folks that are listening, because this eventually became kind of the menu of weapons that were needed. 100 surface-to-air missiles, uh, what's called the ZU-23. It's a twin-barrel 23-millimeter anti-aircraft cannon, 250 Dragunov sniper rifles with scopes. I mean, thousands of AK-47s training, 20,000 fragmentation grenades, C4 plastic explosives, 90-millimeter mortars, uh, RPGs and un, you know uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs. This was not just uh, you know a, a Halloween party and a you know birthday party that was happening. Victor was had the capability to deliver each and every one of these pieces of hardware, didn't he? Oh, he absolutely didn't. He actually came up with the delivery plan. He pulled out a map of South America and it had marked out on the map where the radar sites were. 
And so he actually showed the route that his aircraft would have to take and exactly where he wanted to conduct the drop where they would kick out all the equipment uh, with, with parachutes on it and parachute it down into the jungle. Um, and the whole cover, I think, was going to be some kind of a, uh, of a legitimate cargo shipment down to Brazil. So the idea would be a flight plan that goes all the way down to Brazil. But he had it mapped out what the route would have to be to evade radar coverage to do it. I think I want to say that the, the flight plan was like Nicaragua to Brazil. Um, and so, you know, he had he had it mapped out. He had the capabilities. And um, and like I always told you, where he was really going to make his money was going to be off the transportation end of it. You know, and at that time, the surface-to-air missiles, it was the Eagle brand that the Russians made, right, which was one of the most advanced surface-to-air missiles available oh, yeah. I at mean, that there time. were specs on everything. And, and even prior to that, Smalian had shared stuff with um, – pulled up, like, actual specs, showed pictures. Like, these are the weapons you're going to get, and actual pictures with schematics. And, uh, and the whole bit. So there was no misunderstanding about anything. They talked about the specific type of Eagle that would be delivered um, and what the capabilities were. And th- there was no confusion as to what the goal was. That was one I think they called the needle. That was, exactly. I mean, it was a pr- yep. pretty deadly little one there. So you're in the room. You So uh, Comandante and uh, Carlos are getting everything they need out of them. How long does this meeting go on before you finally get to the point where you think, or where, you know, basically Carlos is running this meeting, really. So how long does this meeting go on before Carlos has finally decided we've got what we need? Because there's no way to communicate with Carlos while he's in the room. No, I'm pretty sure it went on for three weeks. I mean, that's the way it felt, right? On my watch. Uh, was, Time slows it was, down. It, it was well over an hour. I mean, and, but it felt like, honestly, if, if I can't even tell you how long it felt like we're sitting in a room, about eight of us, um, just pacing and pacing and waiting. Um, but as I mentioned to you, Bear wasn't allowed in the room. And so we had that call set up. And then finally, uh, you know, with the phone I'm home, finally the phone rings. And um, said, you know, hey, everything's great. Come on up for a drink. And, you know, that just got my heart started racing. Now we know it's on. And uh, we all quickly, we quickly scramble up. But you had a little bit of a problem, though, because originally you didn't know where the room was. Well, that's just it, because there was, there's multi, I think there was multiple conference rooms. And, and as I alluded to earlier, we couldn't, you know, Mike wasn't allowed up. And we really couldn't communicate with those other guys either. So we just knew that it was a conference room. So, you know, we we get the ties and we scramble up, and uh, when the elevator first opens, you know, we we can't find the right room. But um, ultimately, we do, and we knew we had the right room because Belzeroski is waiting outside; he's guarding the door, and so he was quickly set aside by the ties, and uh, and the room opens, and, and Victor's, you know, I'm right there with him. Um, Looking in, and but what's it like going into this room? And you say you weren't allowed to be armed. Now, is this a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, or did no. you manage to find a um, um, some kind of a weapon between then and uh, going into that room? No, I mean, you know, it was, it was a weird dynamic because I've been places before where they say we got this. You're an advisor, or you're not even allowed to be in the room. And then there was this. They wanted us right there with them to make sure everything was right and right guy and everything else. But uh, we weren't armed, no vests, nothing like that. Um, the ties went first, but listen, they were tactically sound. It awesome um, special forces team that they were using, and um, I remember the. F- but Victor nearly got his ass shot. No, though, he did. When this- he did. There was this one guy, and look, he's a bad dude. Um, he's like the lead special force guy, and he went in. Victor was told to, uh, you know, to put his hands up, and he, um, and he just his body language is horrible. He looked, you could, he he knew the jig was up, right, and he he just looked pissed. And uh, his hands went down under the table. In hindsight, I think he was grabbing for his um, briefcase. Uh, there was nothing in it to, that could cause harm. But you don't know that. You don't know what he's going down there for. And the guy said again, he said, put your hands up. 
I forget his exact words, but there was a curse involved, and he's like, put your hands up, basically, or I'm going to light you up. And, and there was a red dot on Victor's forehead. I mean, he was about to, he was about to take one. And, um, and you're sitting here going, you're going, we've done all of this. Please, God, no, don't put a hole in his head. We want to prosecute this guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I could give you two thoughts in my head right then. I, I think just, it, it was, this is the part that was all surreal. You know, he goes up and then, so we go in and, um, I grabbed one of the undercovers and threw them up on the wall, acted like they were in it. We're, you know, we do the best you can. At least, look, it, it, the jig's going to be up, but we want to get them out safely, if nothing else. We want to get them away from everybody else, make it look like they're being arrested too. And um, so I grabbed one of them and, and dragged them out, and, and I think Wim grabbed the other. And, um, yeah, and then they, they cuffed them, and they start to drag them out of the room, and we get to the elevator. And, and so now I handed off the other guy, the undercover, like he's a bad guy. Get him out of here, right? And then I stick around, and then I walk out as they're dragging Victor out, and we're by the elevators. And, um, and uh, he turned to me, and in English he turned to me and said, the game is over. And, you know, that's it. And I just remember thinking, like, I, yeah, I, I was in awe. I was like, that's a, that's, a, that's a quote out of a movie or something. Like, this, you know, that we did it. And just to play up on that, you know, this podcast is called Game of Crimes. Yeah, see that? You know, we, didn't, we didn't set that up, but we can certainly multi, yeah. you know, take advantage of that <laughs> right here. Play off it. it. So, uh, yeah, so we got him back. We, we get back to the to the, the Thai police office, and that's going to be our only opportunity to speak to him. Um, the judge later didn't believe that, but it really was. They said, look, when he goes in, you get no more access. So tried to talk to him, and he was being really obtuse and— so what was the purpose that what was you, what were you really trying to accomplish by talking to Victor at that point? Because you had Smolian that you wanted to turn and get him to the U.S. You also wanted to do the same thing with Victor, right? Get him to come to the U.S. Yeah, listen, you, that's that's the business is flipping people, right? You never know what he's going to say. You, you might get a great statement where he just admits everything and it makes trial even easier. Um, he might give you up some great real time information, knowing the way the system really works. I'll cooperate before anybody has to know I'm gone. Um, in that situation, do we expect that? No. I mean, you'd have to give up something incredibly monumental. But if if the arms were really ready to go or something, you don't know. So we, we want to hear what he might have to say. And um, he didn't have too much to say. He he was he was definitely probing us too. He didn't just shut up and say I have nothing to say to you. He wanted to feel us out a little bit. But um he's just kind of being, you know, just a little bit I, I don't even know the term. Uh, just like I say, obtuse and difficult and just kind of a uh, a little bit snarky. And uh, so finally I said to him, like, Victor, look, it's only fair that I tell you, like, those guys you just met with, those are my undercovers. And every word was recorded. I already checked the recording. It all came out. And so he put his head down for a second, and he looked up, and he said, I guess you're holding all the cards, aren't you? And, again, that's, when, you know, just one of those, like, this can't be happening. Yeah, but moments. not every recording device worked in that meeting, right? No, I think, in fact, one of them, I think, you know, God bless Carlos for for having the uh, the cojones to actually want to take the second one because uh, I think we went in with three and at least one of them failed and I don't even think this one of them was super great. So as always, he was uh, his uh, his foresight was awesome. Redundancy and that was that's why I said that's a good thing why he decided to take the chance that no let's get that other yeah, thing in there because exactly. that's the reason why you have multiple um, you know things that you do because. Yeah. Backups, man. You know, backups. So, but so Victor's basically he's not going to cooperate. But Smolian uh, ends up becoming key to this. What's your conversation with Smolian? I just said, listen, you've got about fifteen minutes to make you know the gravest decision of your life. Here's the deal, and every step of the way, we told him every place they've been, everything's recorded. You're charged. Like you got two choices: you can sit and rot in a Thai jail, 
which I understand is not pleasant in any way, shape, or form. You're older, not in the best of health. And by the way, you're going to be with the guy that you just did who's going to be furious at you and has a lot of hooks here. Um, or you can get on board the train right away. Um, you're going to have to agree to plead guilty ultimately. But we, we, could, we have a plane ticket waiting for you. We can get you straight home on a flight into, directly into New York and um, you know get you right in front of the prosecutors and start working on some type of cooperation. Um, and he deliberated for, you know, 15, 20 minutes and then said, I think I like plan B. And I said, look, it's really the only option for you. And, uh, and we whisked him out of there. Had a couple agents escort him back home. How do you, so how does that happen? It's because he's, is he under arrest by the, the Thai police or is he, how do you, how do you navigate that? You know, these are for the folks out there because now you're in an area, the Thai police have arrested him. How do you, or did you keep him and not let him go with the Thai police? How did that work? No, he, everybody got brought back. And, um, you know, they gave us. So you're down at the Thai police station. Yeah, but we essentially already had this kind of set up with them. um, Okay. That, that, you know, this is something that we wanted to try. And look, he really didn't have any other option. Um, So we had all, we'd made prearrangements for that contingency with them. Um, But he had to formally wave, you know, he had to wave and um, sign something to, in fact, I, as I recall, I think we had to even make it to where he was going voluntarily. Um, so that there was no question over a you know uh, extradition that didn't comply with their laws. Rendition, yeah. He had to basically he had to sign a waiver and agree to come with us voluntarily. Because he technically wasn't arrested until he landed in New York, right? Well, that was the whole deal. He's either going to go and be under arrest by the Thais, or he could voluntarily waive everything and just come with us voluntarily. And then the second, exactly the second he hit uh, the Southern District, he was under arrest. So a um, couple things that came out of this. It took five to six months to do this op, but it took two years to get Victor extradited. Yeah. How? What was that wait like? It was horrible. I mean, um, there was a, I spent the better part of two years just working um, on the extradition and just different schemes that came up of, you know, whether it was rumors or actual solid intelligence that um, they were trying to get him out, bribe him out, uh, tried to infiltrate like the broader organization just to put out any um, any uh, rumors to put, put to bed any supposed plans to get him out of jail um, every rumor you could imagine and look if you follow the Thai press one week it was going our way and the other week the Russians up their ante and it was going their way I mean the Russians put incredible pressure on my hats off to the Thais they, they showed real fortitude and not giving in they were offered I think massive oil concessions and uh, Every other kind of deal you could imagine. I think they were offered like military deals. Um, the Russians really, you know, Putin did not want him coming to the States. But um, Which speaks to the importance that he wasn't just some run-of-the-mill, you know, gun runner. This guy was oh, yeah. major. No, it became a, huge, uh, became a huge diplomatic fiasco. And look, in fairness to the ties, they got put in a horrible spot. I'm not even sure they really saw that coming. They got put in a terrible position. Um, but it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on in this case either. You know, um, President Bush, with, uh, uh, as I remember, was personally involved in this administration, was great. And then um, President Obama came into office. And Hillary Clinton, um, as Secretary of State, was really strong and really pushed to help make this happen. Um, so it was, a, it was a great time of, uh, you know, even a bipartisanship. It was just it was a common goal for, I think, a lot of the U.S. government. Well, I think anybody who's re- who's responsible for arming people who were involved in the death of five million people and wants to conspire to kill even additional Americans, it's it's easy to get bipartisan about that. Well, I don't have that same faith today, but hopefully, well, back then, hopefully, yeah. hopefully you're right. But there's a lot of good people, and that's why I say, like, you know, 
I think I opened up saying I was one guy of an incredible many, and it's true. I mean, from from State Department officials to uh, folks in intelligence agencies that tried to help out to, you know, guys like Doug Farah, uh, countless foreign law enforcement officers that literally put their lives uh, and their careers in harm's way. Some of this, you know, it comes out and then all of a sudden it becomes this big international fiasco. And a lot of people, that doesn't sit well with a lot of politicians or other people in government that said, you didn't tell me about this or you didn't tell me this would be the ramification. So there's a lot of people that uh, put a lot of skin on the line to make it happen. So, um, you know, I went over to Thailand, had to had to uh, testify at the extradition hearing. It was fine. Uh, but it, that's when it, that's when some of the gravity kind of set in. Um it was a little, a little unnerving going in front of an open Thai court. Now, this, that's the first time I started to realize, like, wow, they all know, the Russians all know what we're doing. Everybody's, you know, aware of this now. I'm testifying in an open court. Uh, I'm not in the United States. Um, I think I started crossing the street if I saw anybody, uh, any, any uh, Caucasian-looking person carrying an umbrella so I didn't get stabbed with a poison tip umbrella or something. Um, Which the Russians, by the way, folks, that, that was one of the famous cases it was. Stabbed a guy in the back of his calf muscle, and I think it was polonium. Yeah. No, it is. Yeah. I, look, I'll be, I, I've never been uh, scared on the job or whatever, but I will tell you it's the first time I, I kind of had to think of things different and you feel your own head playing games with you a little bit. And then sure enough, after that trip, after that I testified at the extradition hearing, I was never allowed back because it came out that I'd been uh, secretly indicted in the Thai court. Uh, so their system is different from ours. It was a different jurisdiction, but they had gotten to someone and, and um, had me charged for illegally wiretapping, which it wasn't even a wiretap, but basically saying we made illegal recordings there. And um, so I wasn't allowed. Um, I wasn't allowed. Are you still a wanted? Say it now. Pub, are you still a wanted fugitive, Zach? I'm not. I was, that was later. That was later cleared. Um, but it took a good long while. And in fact, I was not allowed to participate in the extradition, I had to actually wait at a way station that the uh, the flight was going to have to refuel, and I had to wait at a way station. And um, you're talking about the extradition now, Victor. So you're finally yeah. to the point where it's made it through the courts. Exactly. You're flying him back, and here's the guy who's been doing this forever, and you don't get to be now, there. With well, him. and in fact, we'd already had a false run where I was waiting at a way station once for seven days, and then at the end, the ties wouldn't release him. So there was once we were so close, we actually had a plane over. We actually chartered a plane. And ready to go at the last second, the ties wouldn't give him up. Um, so we'd already been through a f- uh, false run. So until until this truly, truly happened, until he was wheels up from Thailand, we didn't even think we were getting him from Thailand. There was a lot of downtimes. We thought we thought it was going the wrong way. But um, yeah, so I'm waiting at the way station and uh, overseas, and plane lands to refuel. I grab my stuff and I climb on board. And first row, there's Victor sitting right there, and he looks at me and he said, uh, "He's like, uh, I've been waiting for you. I was wondering where you were." And I said, yeah, well, you know, I had, a, I had some legal issues in Thailand. And, and you're used to that, aren't you, Victor? Well, can't travel to certain countries? No, it's funny because I said that. I said <laughs> I had some legal issues in Thailand. He looked at me and he said, yeah, sorry about that. That was only business. And I looked back and I said, well, sorry about this. This is only business too, my friend. And then um, we went. I mean, we treated him great. We have pictures on the plane. He Special meal. He said he only ate vegetarian. He took care of himself, you know, took really good care of him. Um, you know, one person we never mentioned, our, our boss of special operations was Derek Maltz, one of the other best bosses I ever worked for. None of this happens without Derek. He's a true believer, true fighter, just cut through everything to make it happen for us. So he's waiting for us when we land in New York. And um, he goes on the plane and uh, and Victor introduced himself and Victor said, hey, I just want you to know that your guys treated me with a lot of respect. They were complete gentlemen uh, on this whole trip home. And I appreciate that. And then two days later, his lawyer accused us of torturing him on the flight and trying to extract statements. So, 
Um, and by the way, folks, there's a reason we're not diving too much into Derek because there were some good stories on the pre-call. We have been prohibited from repeating on this. Otherwise, Zach will just bolt. And, yeah. But Derek's a friend of all of our – we all know Derek, and it's like – but you're right. Derek is a – he's an animated guy. Let's just say that. Yeah. Look, a lot of this stuff's really personal for Derek. God bless him. His, uh, his, his brother died on a mountaintop. His special forces – U.S. Special Forces in the Air Force and died on a mountaintop in Afghanistan – um, Derek's a New Yorker. Like all this is really close to his heart, and um, none of this happens without him. I'll just say that he's got skin in the game. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned Mike Braun. I mean, we needed a chief ops that just had the guts to uh, to say yes to to give us the budget to be willing to take on the risk. Uh, you know, M- Michelle Leonhardt, uh, I think was the administrator at the time, and uh, there's a lot of people that were involved that um, haven't looked for credit either. That just did a great job. So how does it finally feel? You finally go to court. I mean, we're kind of fast forwarding through a little yeah. bit because people can read about the drama of the court and stuff, but he finally, you're finally done. You're testifying. How long is the jury out on this one? Uh, if you four remember. Hours. Um, oh man, that's short. Yeah, now, no. You got to know that's, if you're a defendant, that's bad news in a federal court with as complex as this case is yeah. four hours. Yeah. No, I'll never forget it. We're in the jury room waiting for the verdict and, you know, um, that's a brutally long way too, because you knew you had the evidence. But look, it, you, you don't know how. You it's, never yeah. know. We've all been in trials. You yeah. never know. And you know, we, we all have our things. Like uh, Anjan Sani, one of the prosecutors. He's phenomenal. One of the most brilliant people I ever met. And he, um, it, it was just you could cut the tension in the in, in the room we're waiting in with a knife. So Anjan decides he needs to loosen the mood, and he plays like his favorite. He calls it his favorite legal clip ever, a movie scene. And, um, you know, so uh, I even said this at a speech I had to give him a going away. Um, you know, I, I, I'm like, you know, what is this going to be? Is it, uh, you know, Atticus Finch and To Kill a Mockingbird? Is it, uh, you know, Kramer versus Kramer? Give me something. And it's Al Pacino in, um, in Son of, of a Woman. woman. Hoo-yah. Oh. He gives Hoo-yah. He gives the scene in the school where, like, you know, where he's got to defend uh, defend the young lad. And uh, it was just awesome. I mean, that'll stick with me forever. Uh, so, yeah, so we um, we get called back in. And uh, Judge Shira Shinlin, uh, who made it very clear she didn't love the fact that she had to do this. She doesn't like stings. But um, she said uh, if it was in her power, she'd give much less sentence. Um, but she was bound by uh, statute, so he got 25 years. And I muttered what I thought was under my breath, um, thank God for minimum mandatories. And there was a New York Post reporter next to me that just said, came up to me after. He said, hey, can I get that quote again from you? And it's like, yeah, you weren't supposed to hear that. So uh, What quote? Yeah, exactly. What quote? I can neither <laughs> confirm nor deny. Exactly. Yeah. Um, no so how was the party that night? You know, it... it it was great, but it was subdued. I think there was just so much exhaustion after all those years. Uh, there was just a chance to be with the guys from Southern District that we, you know, fought through years of this with, and uh, just appreciate each other. I'm not trying to sound corny. I, I mean, it was it, it was light. Now, it was at happy, that point, but- you're just worn out. I mean, you've just been dragged. It's, I mean, it, the operation took five to six months. The, to extradite him took two years, and then you've got the trial on top of that. I mean, you start this in uh, November of 2007, and it's April of 2012 before the guy is finally sentenced. Yeah, yeah like like even on the, the night we got back on the extradition, you know, after years of that, there was, there was, a, there was a good get-together. But you also knew your work had just started because now you had a trial. The hardest work you'll ever go through as an agent is getting ready for a trial. Right. I mean, that, that's when the prosecutors are tireless. And it's a 24-7 deal for a month, two months, whatever. Uh, so, yeah, it was more just uh, 
unbelievable sense of accomplishment and a lot of brotherhood. Uh, I, I would just call like more like appreciating each other than, than a massive party or anything. So, so let me ask you, cause so people are thinking, Hey, I'm not feeling sorry for this guy, Zach, you know, he signed on, he's an agent. He knew he was getting into, and look at all these exotic places around <laughs> oh, the world. He's got to travel to, you know, Bucharest. Yeah. So, so how much of a tourist were you when you went yeah. to all these exotic well, like places? Like Copenhagen. Well, Copenhagen. <laughs> for starters, uh, no one should feel sorry for me. I had a great run. Uh, I was given a great job with unbelievable bosses. Um, I will say for everybody that does this, that participated, everybody in the BIU, there's a lot of guys that did a lot of time in Africa where you'd have to go away for much longer times at once than I did. But, um, you know, that year, I think 2008, I was out of the country over 90 days. And uh, with two young kids at home, my wife was phenomenal. I'd be remiss if I didn't, you know, express my appreciation for her too. You like you're leaving your family behind, and uh, you know, and and yet, go ahead, Murph. No, that was going to be my second question. You know, we tell everybody when when people call me and say, "Hey, I'm thinking about," you know, I saw your show Narcos, and that's really inspiring me to go in law enforcement. Can what's your advice? Your advice is don't look at this as a nine to five, 40 hour a week job. This would be a lifestyle that affects every facet of your life and who pays the price, your family. So what you, you know, what's the hardship on your family while you're doing this for a couple of years? Uh, well, real quick, I'll, I'll, I'll go to Morgan's first question. I'll never, I'm not going to ever tell you we didn't have fun. Um, we did. Some of the fun was just doing the job, but um, women and I had a habit of occasionally bringing our golf clubs along somewhere with us and blowing off steam because <laughs> look just naturally there'd be downtime but um but uh in all seriousness Derek I told you how awesome Derek Maltz was Derek Lou whoever the bosses were they all got it like yeah I, I might say hey I need to be in Barbados tomorrow there's a source someone's giving me a source it's a one day one day shot at this and uh you know I gotta <laughs> break all of our travel policies like in terms of how you're supposed to route things and pay for things but I got to get there in a hurry no one ever doubted that you know they saw what we went through they knew we didn't want to be away from our families for another day if we didn't have to so uh, great locales but most of the time you never left the hotel uh, so you know I think we were talking about that the right. other day like hey how was Paris <laughs> like um, you know it's great Marriott Renaissance I didn't see anything else of it and ate every meal there but Charles de Gaulle <laughs> Charles de Gaulle Airport Taxi to the Sofitel, yeah. Sofitel to the inside restaurant, back in the taxi to Charles de Gaulle, and then back home. Yeah. And listen, and I'm not, God knows, I'm not complaining. Uh, it, it was awesome. But um, yeah, you, listen, my uh, my wife's only, only sibling, her sister passed away while I was overseas on an op. And um, some of the guys that, that I worked with uh, had to go and care for her and, you know, take care of the arrangements while I tried to get home. Uh, back in 2010. And so, you know, even though she'd been through that, she just never wavered. She was, she was amazing. And so, but you do, it takes a toll. And, you know, ultimately when I decided it was time to promote, it was, that was one of the biggest factors. Why my, my boys, I had two young boys at the time and they just, uh, they were done. They're like enough, tired of planes. And, um, yeah, so it, it takes, it takes, it takes a special, a special lady or the ladies, you know, it takes a special man to be married to, to put up with the kind of crap we do. You know, I, I'll be the first to say we've all married up because it's uh, it's such a special uh, relationship that's required to allow us to go out and do our job. 
which hell we love as much as we love well, our families. Yeah. I remind my wife every week, you're one lucky lady. <laughs> just don't, you know, just kind of turn this, flip this back around. You know, I try that. It doesn't go long. Yeah. Well, his, his wife, she goes in the bathroom, throws up and she's like, yeah, honey, whatever well, you got to tell yourself. Uh, my, my wife, she did finally stand her <laughs> ground. Like I had promised I would no more traveling. I'm done for a while. The kids have had enough. Da, 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 da. And, uh, um, and then of course phone rings and I say, Hey, I, I got to leave tomorrow. And she said, uh, she said, all right, you're telling your son. And I was like, what? She's like, I'm not tired, tired of handling all the dirty business. Like you're, you're handling this one yourself. You go tell your son. So I had to drive him, drove him out to get something to eat or whatever. I said, Hey, I got some bad news. And he said, okay, dad, but no airplanes. And I said, wow, man, you're not making this easy. Like, listen, buddy, you know, daddy has to work. It's how we have a house. And it's what I have to do. Keep people safe. And he said, no, no airplanes. You remember, you promised me. You remember, we always, you told me, we always keep our promises and you promised me. So, you know, no more airplanes. And so yeah, I mean, I drove to the airport tears running down my cheeks and that's that was the day i was like it's time time to- so your kid had been talking to the bear hadn't he it's like you got to keep your promises you <laughs> exactly. said exactly <laughs> exactly it's the fuck of the dog come on now well, they're not ready for that murph i, I don't know yeah not most, most <laughs> dad's holding on to that, that story no, no, no. Yeah. hey look i mean we've, we've covered a lot of territory let's just bring this to a close let's bring it to a close with anything you want to cover you know any last words you know anything you're working on you may want to tell people about just just, you know, let's close this out on a high note, too, because you, you'd look back, there's a lot of fun memories, a lot of heartache that went with it, a lot of people that we've all lost, you know, in the line of duty. But, you know, as you close this out, what are you working on? You know, what's a couple thoughts for everybody? Uh, yeah, well, so I'd be remiss if I didn't at least throw my firm out there. I work for a group called Investigative Group International or a investigation uh, company, um, risk management and uh, phenomenal folks. Um I have a great, great second act. I got really lucky to be brought in there. Um, if I didn't do a good job expressing, I hope I did. I've tried to repeatedly talk about other people. Uh, I, look, I lived a charmed career, and a lot of other people raised me up on their shoulders to help uh, do what I hope are some pretty good things. Um, but I've never lost the uh, guy that worked for me, Kyle Brandon, one of my dearest friends in DEA. Um, he'd always say, he had the saying, no great thing was ever done alone. And uh, I've really tried to take that to heart. Um, I learned a lot from the guys that worked with me, for me, as well as uh, above me. So, um, you know, I'm real appreciative of that. Got a few things cooking. Hopefully, hopefully, you know, we'll be hearing out. Hopefully, in the we'll future. be able to. We won't talk about him here, but uh, uh, you know, like Murph, I surprised Murph with some uh, of yeah. the stuff I knew about him, and it's like, so you guys want to stay tuned because you have not heard the last of Rob. How they have the spell your last name? It ends in an I, uh, starts with a Z. So uh, you have not heard the last of Zach. Let's put it that no, way. No, and I'll be I'll be relying on you guys to help get the good word out. Believe me. You know, and let me just finish up by by saying, Zach, and not being corny or cliche whatsoever, we thank the good Lord for your service, man. You made the dedication. Your wife made the same dedication. Your family made the dedication. Our country, our world is a safer place because of your efforts. So it's, it's not to be trivialized. It's not to be minimized. We all know it couldn't be done alone. This is teamwork at the best levels and not just within DEA, multi-agencies within the United States, as well as our law enforcement partners throughout the world. So uh, proud to call you my friend, brother. God bless you. God bless your family. And this is me. You can't see this on the podcast. This is me saluting. Oh, former, he was a, I'm sorry, he was just a... um, 
not an ensign. You were a uh, lieutenant junior grade. Lieutenant JG. That's right. You were an O two O three promotable. This is me saluting you with the proper Navy salute. This is an Air Force salute. <laughs> you know, and this is a DEA <laughs> salute from Murphy's. <laughs> <laughs> And this is me laughing at Morgan. <laughs> hey, Morgan, it's been a pleasure to meet you, man. And uh, Murph, appreciate your friendship after all these years. And I'll just leave by saying this. All the people out there still doing the job, stay safe. I love it. I believe in what you do. It's not the greatest time in the world to be uh, in law enforcement in this country, but there's still a lot of people that appreciate you. So God bless and please stay safe. What you do matters out there. I just said that's the message. What you do matters. We appreciate it. This is a special insertion into the episode because Zach, and it would take three minutes to pronounce his last name, we're not going to do it again, but Zach sandbagged us because he talked about going, he said, yeah, you know, Victor Boot wasn't the world's largest arm dealer. You should have gone after the world's largest arm dealer, Zach, and you missed your chance. And it was Yuri Orloff. Yeah, I, I was. It was either Yuri Orloff or Nicholas Cage. I know it was one of the two of them. Right? Well, you talk about a crime that should somebody should have been prosecuted for, and that's the acting in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to ask you: Did you watch the movie? I did. I, I've seen it m- multiple times, and in fact, uh, <laughs> we watched it uh, in Romania, waiting for the for the big guy to arrive with. Uh, <laughs> Subtitles across the bottom. We, we were bored and we went out to a mall and we found a, a copy in the mall. No, that's pretty cool. In the hotel room. So Steve and I have what we call the patented narcometer. We're going to rate this on a scale of one to 10 kilos. One being not even close, you know, not even nowhere near close. 10 being nailed it. All right. So got to ask you a couple things. The movie overall representing Victor Boots life. Give us rate us on the narcometer. One to 10 kilos. Is it a 10? Is it a one? Or is it in between? On its overall life, it's a one. All right. How about accuracy of the events that unfolded? Uh, well, again, a one with the caveat being that uh, there were there were parts of Africa I thought that they did really well. I mean, clearly there was an actor that was portraying Charles Taylor. He was Charles Taylor's guy in Liberia. So so they did a nice job of, uh, of surrounding actual events. Uh, I don't think that the UN actually has a, a, an international... Um, a fugitive hunter task force or whatever it was in the movie. Well, it was so. Interpol. It was Interpol. and I was going to ask was yeah. Ethan Hawke based on your character did they know that you're going to be involved in this and they got Ethan Hawke to play you in the movie as the relentless Interpol agent. See Relentless, I just worked in the uh, name of the op. Interpol agent to track Yuri Orlov down. Uh no. And, and listen, no offense to Interpol agents anywhere. I I just don't think that's normally their role. In fact, I know that it's not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you've heard it from the source on a scale. I mean, on you've, you've given this a low, the lowest rating possible on the narcometer. It's a one kilo out of ten. That was a great movie. I love the movie. It just it's it's loosely based on Mr. Boot, and he when when we were lucky enough to meet him, he made that very clear. It was a terrible movie and had nothing to do with him in his in his own words. So, so so if you're rating the movie, you you might give it higher than a one. Oh, I'd give the movie itself. I'd give a, I don't know, between an eight and a ten. I loved it. I've seen it multiple times. That's Very pretty dark. good. Yeah. Very Absolutely. good. What'd you like best about the movie? Oh, man, I, that, it's hard to say. I, I just thought it did a really great job of kind of painting the mayhem um, in Africa and, uh, you know, opening up that really dark side of the gun trade. So interesting little fact that came out of the research in the book and the other ones, area. while they were filming the movie, one of the planes they used in the movie was Victor Boots' plane that was actually used the week before to deliver real guns. 
Yeah, uh, it's it's. Uh, I, I'd heard that same thing, and uh, but you know, listen again. He was the biggest because of his uh, cargo transportation uh, company. So if if you look at the number of planes he was putting in Africa, it really shouldn't blow you away that much. I, I bet you most of the Russian aircraft in Africa you could track back to him in one way uh, or way or another. So holy cow, holy cow! You know what? And that movie is just like Narcos. Don't let the facts get in the way of a good story, right? Amen, brother. Amen. <laughs> well, that's why we had to do this special insertion because I forgot to ask him this when we we're actually recording the podcast, but he sandbagged us. He he failed to mention Yuri Orloff, and we all know Yuri. Well, the only crime, the worst, the worst thing, rather than Nicholas Cage's acting, was uh, well, it was actually his acting. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, we just had to get this special insertion in there, and so you heard it. Movie, he rates it out of eight to ten kilos, but uh, in terms of accuracy. Oh God, one of the worst ratings we've ever had, one out of 10, but you guys heard it here first. <laughs> and thanks for your input, Zach. Absolutely. And Mr. Cage, if you're out there, I don't necessarily share Morgan's feelings about your acting. <laughs> I think Suck Nick up. could use some money right now. He needs a loan. I actually like his acting. Always to, oh, Murph's always been out there protecting the, uh, protecting the person getting picked on, so God bless him. Steve, the, the, like I said, the biggest crime was not Victor Boot. It was Nicolas Cage's acting in the movie about Victor Boot. <laughs> you know, I just love the fact that somebody thought, you know, DA is one of the smaller federal law enforcement agencies in the United States. They really are. Like what, 22, 2300 people maybe? No, that's ATF. We've got uh, about 4,500 when they've got a full complement. Oh, okay. I'd, I'd say they'd be lucky to have 4,000 right now. But, you know, this little bitty agency that the, the spooks couldn't get, none, you know, the Brits couldn't get, nobody else could get this guy. And little old DEA comes along. Some guys have a good set of stones on them, use some ingenuity, use the bravery, the expertise they have, and they go in and kick ass and take names. I mean, we got Mr. Victor Boot as a, a, a resident of the United States for quite a while now. And, and let, let me just pierced this fiction that a lot of people think that he's just some Robin Hood. He's a really nice guy. This guy supplied arms for low-intensity conflict all over Africa that resulted in the deaths of six million people. Yeah. I mean, this guy is a modern-day Hitler. He just did it over a much longer time frame. But he, I mean, this, and that's why it's called low-intensity conflict. It stays below the radar. It's just a little bit here, a little bit there. But six million people. Yeah. You're talking, you know, you're talking third world countries here that aren't getting the publicity. And then, you know, the fact that uh, the Russian government tried their best to keep the United States from extraditing Victor Boot into our, you know, our territorial venue here. You know, the, I think what they're afraid of is that he might talk about who's really backing he him. He knows where the bodies are buried. Oh, yeah. And he's hooked up with mush, Russian military GRU, the intelligence folks. I mean, you don't do, you don't get access to planes and weapons and ammo and all the kind of stuff he does without having a connection to the government. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, I mean, who knows? It might go all the way to the top. Uh, yeah, uh, unfortunately, that's, that's probably something we'll never know for sure. Well, I plan on going to Russia and confronting Vladimir Putin myself. So well, they say he's in pretty good shape. Might have to whip his ass. Or... Nah, nah, he's 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 on the downhill slide. He's got something wrong with him. So maybe Parkinson's. So I I think I can mm. take him now. Him when he's not wrestling bears or fishing <laughs> in the stream without his shirt on. So anyway, <laughs> folks, we hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you did, head on over to the Apple Podcast or wherever you're at. Hit the top stars. Hit the five stars. 
it really helps us, and we 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 ask for this, but it's we sincerely appreciate it because this is how Murph and I are are making this content available to everybody, and we want to share the story with even more people. So make sure you hit that five stars. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more info about the show. We will keep constantly updating it as we go along with merch, Patreon, and some live shows. Follow us on social media at GameOfCrimes on Twitter, GameOfCrimes on Facebook and Instagram, and PayPal.com, GameOfCrimesPodcast at gmail.com, or PayPal.me slash GameOfCrimes, wherever you are. But I have to stress, you've got to get on Patreon. I mean, we, we have had some great we have had great feedback from people. We get feedback all the time. I'd love to hear this. We'd love to do this. This month it's Leo DiCaprio month, so you know we're looking at his movies, which is uh, Shutter Island, uh, The Departed, and uh, what was it? Catch Me If You Can. I think it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so right now the Departed is in first place because everybody loves the mob stuff, Whitey Bulger, you know, and mm-hmm. you know this. How do you do the Italian thing when you're a Boston, you know, mobster? So <laughs> you have to learn to pronounce your R's. <laughs> R's, that's right. So guys, um, so make sure you, you know, like I said, head on over to Game of Crimes, you know, at patreon.com slash game of crimes. We have a ton of content and we put out a lot of stuff every month just for you. You know, too, uh, take a look at the uh, Game of Crimes fan page on Facebook. Uh, you oh gotta, yes, you, you got to get through Sandy to get a, become a member through the Mafia Queen, and if you make it through her, you're in our. We have the big fan page, which is the public and the open one, but this is kind of like the secret room, like John Gotti's room, you know, above the Social Club. You yeah, know, you, you have to be admitted. You have to become a member. You have to pass the test. Now, let me tell you, there's some funny shit that comes across there. Uh, there are some. <laughs> there are some seriously ill people. I'm glad we do this over the internet and not in person with some well, of these folks. I think they're a lot like us. That's why we get along so well. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, speaking of getting along so well, we got along so well with our next – I just love the way I do these transitions. Don't you mm, love no, the way I do these segues? I mean, they're smooth. just – it's like I've done this before, you know, professional speaking. But, hey, guys, you know, again, we talk about the final seasons of Narco Mexico is coming out. So we've got Narcos and then Narcos Mexico. Well, the guest next week is the guy who came in, kicked ass, take some names, um, just like Murph and JP did. But it's Chris Feistel. So tell us about the Don Johnson of Columbia there, Murph. <laughs> yeah, Chris and I were stationed in Miami together. Uh, he came to Columbia after I'd already and gone. And wait till you see the pictures he sent us. When we say he's got that mullet and that you know surfer hair and everything, dude, he's got it going on. Oh, man. He had hair halfway down his back. It was blonde. He's big, tall, you know, surfer Hell, type Hell, I might have gone dude. out with him. He was so good looking at the time. <laughs> It's funny. We wait till you hear the story about what happened to his hair. <laughs> it's kind and of funny. And why too. he had to cut it, yes. Yeah. But it's, uh, you know, Chris and, and he worked with Dave Mitchell and Jerry Salama. Jerry was there when uh, Javier and I were there working. And I knew Dave from Miami days. But uh, these guys, you know, they, they did the equivalent of what Javier and I did, but they didn't live on a police base. They were actually living out in, in the public in Cali chasing the Cali cartel. So, in a lot of ways, you know, the dangers they faced were. Every bit as dangerous as what we faced, if not more so. Yeah, I, there's some real interesting stories about was the country ready, really, ready, really for <laughs> ready, really, really ready. ready. God, <laughs> I haven't even started day drinking yet. Is the was the country really ready for yet another big operation like you know, like you said, just got through with the Medellin cartel? Do we really want to go after the Cali cartel? Do we want? Is there going to be violence? Is there going to be death? And it was so interesting. Like I said, um, you know, they made season three of Narcos based on Chris's work down there. Uh, obviously, you guys can say, hey, look, we. 
were twice as good because they had two episodes and you well, only get one. So no question about it. But you know, and that was one of Chris's pet peeves. He'll tell you about during the interview because it's you know there was a whole lot more than you could cover in ten ten hours. Yeah, and it was compressed. I mean, and obviously, so we get yeah, actually by the time we get done, we actually have a really good interview with Chris coming up. He gets into some details stuff that again you don't hear anywhere else, and we get the real deal. We get the people, not people who read about it. We have people who were did the real stuff. So that's coming up on episode twenty. That's Biente in Espanol. Episode episodo de Biente, right, Murph? That's close. Biente. Close. Biente. Biente. Yeah. Bente, not Vente for you Starbucks people. Bente. All right, 20. <laughs> well, it's actually spelled with a V, but it's pronounced with a B. With a B, that's right. Viva Vacaciones, not Vacaciones. So, Vacaciones. So, anyway, hey, guys. So, hey, everybody, we appreciate it. Stay tuned. Episode 20 coming up, Chris Feistel. We're going to be talking about the Cali Cartel. And thank you guys once again for playing the biggest game of all, the Game of Crimes. 